And just allow and let be the time just to check in with yourself and acknowledge what's present in the body, in the mind, in the heart. And so just taking as much time as you'd like, just checking in with yourself, how you're feeling in the body, the mind. And at any point, too, you're welcome, it feels right, to come to the breath and becoming mindful of breathing in and breathing out. And finding the place where you feel your breath to be prominent and distinct. It may be in the inner nostrils, the tip of the nose, the upper lip. Or perhaps in the chest or the belly or other places within the body. Becoming mindful of the breath, breathing normally and naturally. Breathing in and knowing that you're breathing in as you're breathing in. Breathing out and knowing you're breathing out. Direct experience being present.
And of course, it's quite natural at times that the mind will wander off into the future, the past. Once you recognize that you've wandered off, acknowledging wherever you went, And in the spirit of training with great kindness, just acknowledging wherever you went and returning back to the breath again and again, being present, breathing in and out. And so I'll just end with a, a poem from Mary Oliver called The Journey. And she says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. And though the voices kept shouting out their bad advice as they said, mend my life, mend my life, mend my life, each voice cried, but this time you didn't stop and you knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers and the melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and it was a wild night. And the road was full of fallen branches and stones. And little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds. The stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds and there was a new voice 
a new voice that you slowly recognized as your own. And it kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And there was a new voice that you slowly recognized as your own, and it kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. And so thank you so much. And um, Rami, pronouncing your name correctly, Romi is going to, um, she's one of the managers here and has some announcements for us. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming out in the rain to see Bob and Steve today. And welcome. A couple of quick announcements. Firstly, my name is Romy, and if you have any questions, you can please see me or ask any of the fabulous volunteers. We're wearing name tags, so you know us. CEs, if anybody has continuing education credit today or wants it, and has not signed in, you must do it right now. We hand you a survey. Oh, we have a taker. Please sign in, first 15 minutes of the class. We're going to give you a survey, and in the last 15 minutes of the class, you will sign out and we'll give you your certificate. We have a fabulous self-serve bookstore, although volunteer Wendy may be in there throughout the day. It's at the end of the hall, it's very beautiful. We have Steve and Bob's books there. Marianne did a lovely display, but Bob also has CDs. And if you want those, you can purchase them at the back of the room. So if you want those, you put your money in the box. If you want the books, you do that in the bookstore. And we have hearing-assisted devices, which really work wonderfully. And if you'd like one, Carrie in the back has them all ready for you. Um, please turn off your cell phones. They do affect the audio equipment. You may drink in the hall, but we uh, that's tea or <clears throat> like that. You know what I mean. Um, but please have your, I don't know why I did that, Joan. Um, please have them covered. And if you spill, let a volunteer know, and we'll wipe it up right away. You can eat lunch in the hall because of the rain as well. Um, we do have an event upstairs, and they're using both the rooms and all of the upstairs. They've been silent for three days. So we'd love for you to stay down here today. There's tea, restroom, bookstore. Downstairs is better than upstairs anyway. Um, if you forgot your lunch today, Woodacre Market is across the street, and I can tell you how to get there very easily. And again... Um, the group upstairs is silent. So please keep that in mind as you're walking through the tea area. All right. I will now hand it over to Bob and Steve. Have a very lovely day. And if you need anything, please let me know. Thank you. I forgot to say we have mic runners. So if you ask for questions, we'll do that. So welcome here. Is this sounding well enough? You can hear me? No, me either. Maybe our... Let's turn it on. Hello, hello. 
Is that better? No. Let's just keep trying. We'll get it. She's scurrying around back there. How about that? Oh. That's a trick. <laughs> I've just I've got permanent. <laughs> so welcome here. <laughs> She's good. So we're going to be uh, offering you some information today about mindfulness-based stress reduction and uh, mindfulness in medicine in general. Both Bob and myself have worked in medical centers and at medical centers for many years, teaching MBSR and bringing mindfulness to the medical community and to many, many people that are coming in with stress-related disorders. So I want to let you know we'll be offering some didactic today about MBSR, mindfulness in general, and giving you some things about how this is valuable in our lives and and everyone's lives is wanting to work with their bodies and minds. But to really learn about mindfulness it means we need to put time and being present and actually practicing mindfulness as we learn to embody this and it's real for us rather than some concepts, rather than going away with some ideas about MBSR, mindfulness and medicine. We want you to go away with a real experience of what mindfulness is and how you may apply it to your lives and perhaps help others apply it to their lives. So how many people are new to mindfulness in this group? How many people? A few. And how many people are new to Spirit Rock? Quite a number of welcome here. How many people are health professionals? Lovely. Well, I am too. I've been working as a mindfulness-based psychotherapist now for some 38 years, uh, mostly working in mind-body medicine through the medical center in Chico, California. So I want to know about, the first of all, what brings you here, really brings you here? What do you want to come here? Maybe that will give us some idea of where we'll go today, what we can offer you. So just at the very beginning, if you would just pause and check in with yourself, what brings you here? Really? What really brings you here? What do you want? Really? If I should take that a little further, it would be, Really, really. (laughs) Or really, really, really. What do you really want? Why are you here? What do you want? So feel into this. I mean, between you and yourself, who's the kid? you want? 
And as you settle into that, get a real feel for that, we'd like you to break into pairs to somebody near you and take turns sharing with one another what brings you here. Choose a person. I don't see them.
So bringing your conversation to a close, maybe as you're ready and you like, let's uh, make this a place where we can all connect a bit. And let me ask, what brings you here? Not all at once. One person. There's one. Yes, say it. It'll help. Right, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. And you just keep it right in front of you. Right? Okay. Hello. Got I'm it. Karen. And I'm new at this, uh, really new at this. When you said, why are we coming here? I'm like, well, I'm coming here because my wife is enjoying this, and, and I'm kind of looking at this. And then I went a little bit deeper, and then in the silence it was... I'm switching gears in my career. And when I move away from what I've been doing for 20-some-odd years and coming to a place where I can really go with myself, um, you're asking the questions that I've been asking myself. So I'm here to figure out where I'm going to go once I retire. Hmm. Thank you. Wonderful. Who else? What brings you here? Okay. Hello. I'm Lisa. And I'm here because I want for mindfulness meditation to become a more natural part of my, of my body so to speak. This isn't my first time being exposed to it and practicing, but I want it to just, that, that I will just become so comfortable and familiar with it that it won't be a special thing, that it's something that I can go in and out of in my, every, in my everyday life. So that's why I'm here. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? What brings you here? Right here to the right. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I have a very specific goal in mind, and that is to teach mindfulness meditation to cancer patients and caregivers. Um, there's a program at Marin General for cancer patients, but not for caregivers, and I've been both a cancer patient and a caregiver and know how important mindfulness based meditation is. So that's my goal. Mm, lovely. Thank you. Hi, my name is Wendy. I'm a myofascial therapist. And I just, um, so I, I work with a lot of people just high stress and a lot of illness and cancer and everything. And so I want to learn from you gentlemen. I just read Norman Cousins' book, Anatomy of an Illness. Mm. And uh, it just made me think, you know, from the experience of what I'm learning and what he wrote, the power of the mind over the body. 
is just shocking. So I want to learn. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Maybe one more. Yes. Two. Hello, my name is Joan. Um, I've been practicing for about five years, um, but um, and have done many retreats up there. Um, but my son just started his six-year residency at UMass, and um, I had started the John Kabat-Zinn book, and I just felt somehow there were no accidents, and I was really interested in MBSR, and I. I, my, my fourth child just went off to college and I was trying to look for my purpose and for some reason this just really really spoke to me hmm. so that's why I'm here <laughs> thank you welcome, thank you my name's Barbara and I have a lot of uh, chronic pain and stress in my body and so I'd like to um, be more present with it and um, and I also would like to be more mindful in my interactions with people. That's why I'm here. As would we all. Thank you. So maybe, um, was there a hand up still? Yes. So this will be the last one. Um, I feel like this might sound a little bit mundane compared to what a lot of other folks have said, but I... I can't stop thinking about work, and it's been that way for 20 years um, since high school. And um, I just turned 35 this year and made a commitment to myself to, to actually learn how to make space for myself inside. Um, and I, yeah, I'm just desperate to stop thinking about work 24 7. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you. So we'll take a a pause here, but they'll, today will be a day of, um, we'll be talking a bit, we'll be practicing and doing some mindful movement and then some more talking, so we'll be interspersing between uh, movement, some teachings, and some discussion. And uh, I'm Bob again, and first of all, I, I do want to just really welcome everyone here and coming here during this rainy time and uh, so thank you so much for coming to, to Spirit Rock. And um, I've been involved with Spirit Rock for many years and um, teach retreats above, up the hill there as well as in here. But actually, well, down here, I should say. But this is actually uh, the first time teaching in this very beautiful meditation hall. This was just opened a few months ago. There was a formerly a trailer that was there for about 25 years that we all did many, many day-longs for many, many years in, and it's now completely gone. You wouldn't even know there was something there. And uh, But this is the first time I've been watching this being built and um, finally get to, to be here and to practice and to teach in it. And so I'm just really excited about being here. And uh, nice view. <laughs> and um, speaking of the view, too, I always like to just say that, you know, we're on this stage, Spirit Rock put it here, and they asked us to sit here, but our hearts are just in the same level with everyone else. I always feel it's kind of weird being higher and teacher. But, you know, I'll speak for Steve. We're both just students of meditation, and we happen to also teach. So I really want to just, you know, the mutuality. We, we are in this together. 
And so with great humility, um, we're here to share a little bit of what we've been uh, doing and practicing, and, and we'll learn from each other. So I really want to you know, welcome you. If any of you want to be more comfortable, you can come closer. There's still a few cushions up front, and just take care of yourself. If you need to stand, you need to lie down, you need to take care of yourself in any way, please you know that that's, um, you know, please do take care of yourself. <clears throat> well, I'll speak a little bit about the, the history of, of MBSR, which is the acronym. <coughs> Pardon me <clears throat> for mindfulness-based stress reduction. And uh, MBSR was founded by Dr. John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, in 1979. And um, just a little bit about this um, founding of MBSR that uh, John was uh, a student at MIT getting his uh, doctorate in molecular biology and uh, Philip Kaplow, who's a Zen teacher, wrote the three pillars of Zen, came to give a talk on mindfulness sometime in the mid-70s. And um, John attended that talk and was really like, wow, mindfulness, there's like a whole practice about being present. And um, he began to start practicing and really got into the practice and began studying with a Korean Zen master in Cambridge, Sensineum, and then later um, started practicing at the Insight Meditation Society, which is a kind of a sister center to Spirit Rock uh, in Barrie, Massachusetts, and began practicing Vipassana, Insight Meditation. And after John graduated from uh, school, he got a job as a faculty instructor at the medical school at UMass Medical Center and began his uh, academic and teaching career and um, taught in the medical school. And, <clears throat> and there was a retreat that uh, was scheduled at the Insight Meditation Society for a couple of weeks, and he decided to take that retreat. And while he was at that retreat, um, there was like these moments of just reflection about his life um, in the medical center and teaching. And also this reflection of how much that he loved the Dharma, these teachings of insight meditation. And somehow something just arose like a lightning bolt, a flash, an inspiration. What, maybe, I wonder if it's actually possible to bring these two things together. His love of medicine and health and supporting health and well-being and his love of, of the Dharma, these teachings of, of the Buddha. And evidently, this is what he has shared, that it just came to him, this whole vision of, of a, a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And it could definitely work at UMass Medical Center. And then he went on to fantasize, like, it could actually spread all over the world. And he, sometimes when we talk about this, he'll say it's kind of like a deja vu, because it, it happened. And it's quite extraordinary, um, um, this program that he developed at UMass Medical Center. So he went back after that inspirational uh, um, event and wrote to put together a pilot proposal, and it was accepted by the medical center, and he began to offer MBSR programs. And being that he was a scientist, he began to study it and do research and get it published in 
um, medical journals of uh, efficacy, the benefits of mindfulness meditation. In those days, they were not double-blind studies, but they were you know, well-researched papers that were definitely indicating that this needed more research and that there was something very beneficial going on. I think um, some of the studies that I think were pretty remarkable early on that attracted interest was a four-year follow-up study of people living with chronic pain that showed, that was published in the Journal of Chronic Pain, um, that found that even after four years, the people who went through the mindfulness program were relating better in living with their pain than before. And there was a three-year follow-up study and it published in um, a journal of psychiatry on the effects of mindfulness meditation working with people with panic and anxiety disorder that found that even after three years, people were living and dealing much better with their panic and anxiety than before. There was an even study done in the early years with patients with psoriasis that the common treatment is photolight therapy. And so they actually did an experiment with a double blind of a, both groups had psoriasis and they would be in the photo booth and receive the photolight therapy treatment, but one group did the meditation practice and one did not, and those that actually did the meditation practice while they were receiving their treatment had more longitudinal benefits from that treatment than those that didn't. So there was some pointing towards that um, the impact of mindfulness uh, working with one's health and well-being was, um, was showing some benefit. In 1993, Bill Moyers put out a series called Healing in the Mind. It was a five-part series. And John Kabat-Zinn's program was featured in that series. And when that came out, it's really the power of the media. It is said that the, the phone started ringing at UMass Medical Center for the people wanting to learn how to do what John Kabat-Zinn was doing, how to learn mindfulness-based stress reduction. That was one of the, of the five-part series. And, um, it said that actually the phones at UMass Medical Center at the Center for Mindfulness have, have still not stopped ringing since that one single event. It was really powerful, the power of media. And perhaps it's just the right time, the right place, but um, MBSR has spread all over the world. And actually, even from MBSR, it's spread even to the greater uh, basket of mindfulness. There's now so many things. There's mindfulness facilitator trainings. There's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. There's mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting. Dialectical behavioral therapy has an element of mindfulness in it. There's so many different mindfulness approaches. There's mindfulness relapse and prevention. There is so much mindfulness happening in the world. And... Um, I say all in all, it's pretty good. It's also become kind of a fad. And you know, I saw in one magazine, you can buy mindful clothing. And if you wear that clothing, like, I, don't, I wonder if I have my mindful clothing on. And uh, mindful watches. And anyway, so you know, with, with all things, there's, there's things like this, and I want to acknowledge that. And um, nevertheless, having that, that word mindfulness be more part of our vocabulary is, I think, fairly significant. Remember in Star Wars when um, Qui-Gon was saying to Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi to be mindful, it's like, wow, he used the word mindfulness. And, um, you know, I also work for the Center for Mindfulness at UMass Medical Center. I'm on their teaching team, and I do a lot of national and international 
teaching, training people to become MBSR teachers. And so I've done this for a number of years, and, and I will say that it's, um, it is quite amazing to be in many different cultures and meeting all these amazing people that want to bring mindfulness to their people. It is extraordinary that um, it gives me hope for this world. And I don't want to be naive because there's a lot, um, there's a lot to be done. At the same time, I think anything that can help bring greater awareness, greater heart, is a good thing. And it's really amazing to see um, this happening. Actually, a colleague of mine and myself will be traveling to Beijing in China in um, December. And this is a, um, a teacher training that we're doing there. We've done a series of them, but this particular training is very significant because um, after they complete this training, they will be qualified MBSR teachers in mindfulness-based stress reduction. Right now, there's only one mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher in China. And after this training, there'll be about 100. And it's going to just explode. And um, you know, one of the gifts of MBSR is because it's, I, I don't know if I really like this word, but it's, it's, in this, it's more of a secular approach. To me, sometimes secular implies not sacred, and yet I, I find in some ways that MBSR is incredibly spiritual, incredibly sacred. And as John Kabat-Zinn would say, it's not a decontextualization of the Dharma, but a recontextualization in a language that perhaps is more applicable and understandable to um, those in the mainstream. And it's very exciting. I'll just come back to China for a moment because China historically was a land of, of deep mindfulness for a long time. And that's kind of um, not been there. And uh, so it's like kind of like reintroducing mindfulness into the mainstream in China. We've had to actually, um, this is being sponsored by the Chinese Medical Association, the Chinese Psychological Association, so we've really done very good works, or the people that have helped sponsor this to have this become credible. We were also told that there was going to be government agents in um, the trainings, and if we said anything wrong, they would just close it and stop, and we'd all have to go home. So that was a, the ante was kind of up there, so we were there last November, and no one stopped it, so I'm grateful. And um, so we will continue on in December and, and just to see potentially the spread of, of mindfulness into their culture because there is such a high population of people there and not enough health professionals. So they're really excited in, in, in being able to work with people in larger groups, helping to work with stress and pain and illness. Um, so MBSR is an eight-week program which John Kabat-Zinn developed, and we actually have a whole professional uh, training to train people to come MBSR teachers. It's through the Center for Mindfulness, UMass Medical Center. There is a program standard, and um, because of so much mindfulness in the world, that there was the, the need and the importance to really develop a protocol and a standard that what is MBSR and what perhaps is something different. And um, so today we're going to be giving you uh, some of the teachings or practices that are taught in MBSR, and so we'll have a little bit of experience. But generally speaking, it's an eight-week program. People meet once a week for two and a half hours approximately. In the sixth week, there is a day-long session. Actually, I'm curious, how many of you have been through an MBSR program? Raise your hands. So not so many. Okay. 
Thank you. Well, in the San Francisco Bay Area, MBSR is a, there's a lot of it. So you could just internet search MBSR in San Francisco Bay Area, you'll come up with a lot. But essentially, it is an eight-week program. And people meet once a week for two and a half hours, a day long, as I mentioned, in the sixth week. And um, in particularly within MBSR, we're teaching mindfulness meditation as a way of living with stress, pain, and illness, as well as to help uh, promote health and well-being. We introduce mindfulness practice as a way of life. Formally, we teach some med formal meditation practices, the body scan, sitting meditation, awareness of breathing, loving-kindness meditation. We'll have um, practices of this today, so you'll have some experience. We also teach mindful yoga, uh, mindful walking meditation. We also teach mindfulness in everyday life. So there's the formal practices of mindfulness where we might be stationary, sitting or lying, and doing a formal guided meditation practice, such as the body scan or the sitting meditation. But we're also emphasizing bringing our mindfulness into our day-to-day -day activities. We call this the informal practices of mindfulness. There's so many moments that make up a day, but at times our mind is elsewhere, often to the future, often in the past. And so we're trying to bring more awareness to the day-to-day -day activities when we're folding laundry, brushing our teeth, sweeping the floor, having a conversation with someone. Why not be present and be there with them? When we think about it, um, where the rubber meets the road is the present moment. This is where we live. This is the true time. The time is now. And sometimes people think, well, if I'm only here now, um, you know, I mean, can I think ahead of the future? And I think it's very important to think ahead of the future. Otherwise, there'll be no food in the refrigerator. And so, but at times we can get lost in our thinking about the future and can go into some anxiety and so forth, or we become ruminations of the past. So we're just orienting towards becoming more present in the here and now. I think I'm going to pause here. I can keep on going on a riff, but I think I'll pause and have Steve continue on. Thanks, Bob. As uh, Bob's talking, I'm thinking about a uh, few classes I've got going right now. One of them is at the medical center that I work at, an inner medical center, which I was just reflecting on. When did I start there? It was 1988. And we had a place called the Stress and Health Center, where at that time people were coming. That the, the leader of this program uh, recognized there was some relationship between our minds, our thoughts, our emotions, our way of looking at things and our bodies. We were seeing a lot of people come in. I was seeing them in individual therapy. And I think all of us know this from our own lives, paying attention, how we can get ourselves into states of mind that really do influence our bodies and our sleep, uh, our health, uh, tension in our bodies, many, many different ways. 
And in the current class I have, I have probably about, I have 24 people in this MBSR class. At least a third of them are medical professionals from the medical center. So we have uh, two physicians, we have three PAs, we have a couple nurse practitioners and uh, about eight or nine nurses. And, and of all the people that are in there, people coming in with real serious health-related problems that are chronic pain, and, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, other, other stress-related illnesses. You, as we do our first check-in in the class, people are talking about, as I asked here, what really brings you here? And uh, we make commitments towards confidentiality and no advice giving within the group. And so people will right away be coming forward and really sharing while they're, while they're here. Well, here we have a room that has doctors and their patients in it. And the doctors are coming forward and saying their truths. And the nurse practitioners. And they're talking about how they're being eaten alive by the medical system. And how much it's, they can't take it. The stress is too much for them. It's lost all of its joy. They forgot why they came into medicine to begin with. Many of them are suffering worse than their patients, but their patients never knew it. This is not what they signed up for. Now, there's something called uh, electronic record keeping that takes them away from their patients, and, and uh, they hate it. And they hardly can look anybody in the eyes as they're trying to get all this done, and, and the medical center wants them to see more. It's very hard. And so right away we see, as we really start speaking our truth, that we're in a community of suffering. All human beings suffer at some level or another. All of us deserve to find some way to care for ourselves. And truly, that's the real gift that uh, John Kabat-Zinn brought with bringing mindfulness into medicine and seeing it spread into the world. That Right away, we can start applying this in a very practical way and start paying attention to my way of looking at things. Many, many years ago, for example, I'm doing my morning meditation, and, and, uh, and I notice after about 15 minutes, my lips are poked out. You know, I noticed because they were hurting. So I, I thought I, I would do just like any, I would tell anybody in a class or any patient to do. Pay attention. Leave them out there. What's, what's going on? I don't think they're usually out there. And it only took me a few moments to realize I hadn't been meditating at all for about the last 10 minutes. I've been having a diatribe in my mind about my neighbor and his stupid dogs that were barking, that are always barking. And I was really socking it to him. And, I was, and we were having a really great argument in my head. <laughs> it's all in my head. And I realized for the first time there's a relationship between my anger and my lips. And it was like, I never knew. I never knew. Some people have it in their jaws. Some people have it in their shoulders and their guts. I have it in my lips. And so ever since then, I've been really worried about those old people that got really wrinkly lips because I figured they've been pissed off a long time. <laughs> within this paying attention, our body changes in relation to how we use it. We start seeing how we're using it. We start seeing and feeling the way certain emotional and mental states play out 
physically in our body if we're being mindful, being present in each moment, paying attention to the body, paying attention to the mind. We start making discoveries. We don't see things as they are. As a whole, we don't. We see them as we are. Our lenses, our ways of looking at things, transform things. And each of us have got our own get going here. And we're optimistic, we're pessimistic. We, uh, we're foolish enough to be watching the national elections and now we're all bummed out. We've got fears going, we've got doubts going. These attitudes of mind not only affect our perception, but our perception affects our bodies. We know it. We, we can see how attending to some things can keep us awake for hours and hours. Attending to some things can bring about big effects in our body. Again and again, class after class, after these many hundreds of people, you see things and hear things. Here's, here's a woman that come, came in one last year who was not wanting to be there. She was there because her dentist insisted that she was there. She'd be there. And she, she did it because the dentist insisted she was grinding her teeth. And she said, I never grind my teeth. He's nuts. I don't do it ever. And I hate this, and I don't want to be here. But she stick, sticks with it. And, and about the third week, she came in and announced to the class, well, I grind my teeth all the time. <laughs> and I didn't know. What we do, we start noticing what we're doing with our mind and how certain mental states play out in the body. All of our emotions, all the things we want, all the things we don't want, the things we fear, the things we doubt, have a role. Wherever a thought goes, a chemical goes. It's a psycho-neuro-immuno system that is completely interactive with our thoughts and emotions. And we're the only ones that can really discover this. And so in many cases, and when it comes to stress-related illnesses, there's more you can do for yourself than anybody else can. There's more you can do for yourself than anyone else can. And so at the very beginning of many of our classes, this is something that many teachers will say, there's more you can do for yourself, particularly when it comes to chronic conditions and illness. And another thing we'll say, and you might consider too right now, is a, is a an idea that you can reflect on that no matter what's going on with you, there's more right with you than there's wrong with you. More right with you than there's wrong with you. And now, we'll put these kind of things out there. We're not putting them out there as injunctions or cardinal truths or anything like that. Put it on a shelf. Take a look at it. Return to it again and again. Something I've said in many, many classes over the years, at the very beginning of a class, is something you might reflect on right now, too, that stress is about 10% what's happening in your life, whatever it is, and 90% your way of looking at what's happening. So what do you think about that idea? Any naysayers? 
Thank you. Particularly the word ruminating is a good one. The, uh, and so in all the classes, I'll have people in there with cancer, with heart disease, with irritable bowel syndrome, with I mean, horrible, painful, awful conditions, chronic pain that they have to come in with walkers and sometimes on gurneys. And, uh, and I'll say that, how you guys feel about it. And don't you know the people there who just say they lost their husband or their child or they're dealing with a very serious cancer that can't be stopped? They'll say, well, did you happen to hear what I said in my check-in? I said, yeah. I'll say yes. I'm just putting it out there. Just think about it. Pay attention over the next few weeks. And without exception, each one of those people said, okay, it's true. Yes, it's true that I may be dying of cancer or I may be losing this part of my body or that, but the stress that's coming along with this is really my doing. And, uh, and very often they'll even come back and say, ah, it's more like 2% what's happening and 98% my... What, what I want, what I don't want, what I hate what I want to get rid of. These are, these are things that contribute to health and wellness. And each of us do have a choice with this. We can notice what we're doing. And all of us have our own particular gig that we do. We're, most of it has started when we were very little, in our conditioning from our childhood, from our infancy. Every one of us has our thing. And if you don't know what your thing is yet, just ask your spouse. <laughs> They've been dying for you to ask. <laughs> they know exactly what it is. <laughs> or your best friend or your daughter or your son. Let, they'll tell you. Your brother will tell you. <laughs> They've been trying to tell you for years. And you get mad. <laughs> we all have our thing. Optimistic, pessimistic. So um, a little piece, um, mindfulness and perception and how we look at things and how that plays out in a mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And it is amazing. Bob's talking about these places of coming together and joining and, and how wonderful it is to see this in all these faraway places. And I've been teaching MBSR online for almost 20 years now and so people are coming in from all over the world into these classes in all different time zones. And, and uh, just my class before last, I have uh, several Jewish people coming out of uh, Jerusalem and several Muslim people coming out of different Muslim countries. And uh, I was astonished to find as I put together all Skype groups of people that want to be friends and meet between classes and talk about. Uh, and... In two of these cases, uh, the Muslims and the Jews became the best of friends. <laughs> and it turns out in one case, the two of these women that were wives and moms and at home keepers, that both of them had the same dilemma. Their husband had brought home their mother. And the mother had taken over the home. And the mother-in-law was driving them both crazy. And they immediately bonded in this place of sisterhood. And you start looking at this and we see how close we are 
And it's pretty delightful, doctors and patients and doctors and other doctors, doctors that never talk to each other and actually speak the truth. They're always got to look real good. They can drop all that in a class. Perception. So just a little bit about this one element of MBSR. Um, I think um, let's shift and talk a, a little bit later, but maybe do some mindful movement now and get up off of our feet. And I'll lead us in a little bit of a mindful yoga. Standing yoga. And if for some reason standing isn't right for you with your body, you may also do this sitting in a chair, and that's just fine. Just listen to your body. A huge part of this practice is just this. Attending to your body, listening to your body, honoring what your body says, and particularly when we're doing mindful movement practice like yoga, not doing anything your body says it doesn't want to do. When the body says no, listen to it. If your doctor would say no. So these will be pretty simple. Just bringing up one arm, reaching it up real high, maybe stretch it along that whole side of the body, breathing as you do this. And let's just release that. And as that comes down, bringing up the other arm. And same thing, reaching way high. And maybe you do a little curve so you can feel a stretch on that side of the body. Breathing. And let's do it again. Arm comes up with an in-breath. And we'll do a curve with an out-breath. Often we find releases on out-breaths that come as gifts rather than some kind of achievement. Same thing, curving. Feel that side of your body. One more. And if you're a person that likes sleeping on your side at night, sometimes this is a lovely thing to do for yourself as you get up in the morning. Now let's bring up both arms. And bring them down. Bringing up both arms. And bringing them down. One more. Bringing awareness into the body, listening to the body, being present in the body. It's a lot what mindfulness is. So let's do some things with our shoulders. Bringing our shoulders forward, squeezing them in, bringing them backwards. Squeeze backwards. Bringing them forward, breathing out, squeezing in. Breathing in and breathing out. Some of these you can do 
in an airplane or at a long red light. And you're no longer in your mind thinking you're going to be late. <laughs> you're actually in your body again, giving it a little gift. Lovely. We'll do some shoulder rolls, breathing in and breathing out from forward to backwards. If you do this by following your breath, you can go from 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock with an in-breath, from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock with an out-breath. Mindfully. So being in the shoulder as you do this, feeling the shoulder. For some reason right now my shoulder is going click, click, and I know why. Because I've been doing home renovation. I'm getting too old for that. Let's go the opposite direction. It's not clicking this way. And it's saying, you're 68, cut it out. Let's switch shoulders clockwise around a few times, breathing in, breathing out, bringing a huge amount of awareness into the shoulder, reversing. That's one of the things my wife is doing. She's shouting at me from deck. Take it easy. Let's do both shoulders. Coming back to stillness and just pausing for a few moments to feel what you feel in your shoulders. Notice your stance over your feet. If you consider your stance for a few moments, you might see how important that is. Your knees might be slightly open rather than locked. See if you can release at the pelvis, which means that if you had sand in your back pockets, there'd be a letting go there. And as soon as you do that, you'll notice there'll be a little bit of lumbar curve that opens in your back, or maybe your belly will come forward a little bit. Be present in your breath as you move up your body, up through your torso, shoulders, neck, and head. As you do, pause in those places where you find discomfort or holding or tension, like I did with my lips that day. Bring curiosity there. These two central elements of mindfulness practice, investigating deeply, curiosity, very important, very important element that comes with this curiosity is loving kindness, deep, warm friendship with yourself, awareness with loving kindness. And from time to time as we're doing this practice, you might again bring awareness to, to your body like this, that you might feel, how's the body now? Where's it holding now? And sometimes that'll give you clues about your mind and your body, where fatigue is, or maybe a little too much anger. 
Now let's do some things with our neck. So with our breathing out, we're going to fall forward, breathe in, and breathe out. We're clockwise with our neck from 12 to 3 to 6 to 9 with the out breath going to each quadrant of the clock clockwise at first. And if you coordinate your neck rolls with your breath and follow the breath rather than lead the breath, you might notice this rolling slows down a little. Much of yoga practice is just this, bringing mind and body together, awareness and movement. Let's go around the clock, counterclockwise now. Uh, marriage of mind and body and the practice itself that we wish to live in and make a way of life. If we're not making this a way of life, as somebody said in their check-in, this is really what they're looking to do, then why bother? It's not just a part-time thing. It's a way of being in the world. Knowing when to get up and turn off the TV, when to go to bed, when to stop eating, what to eat. Pausing now. Again. We're going to do some uh, things with our legs now, involving our legs. So bring your arms up, squatting a little, breathing out. Breathing in. And breathing out. Once again. And breathing out. Let's just stand here for a few moments and feel what our body feels. If you notice any releases as you stand here. Where are you holding? What's that holding about? What's it like when you ask that place to let go? What's your breath like after doing just very few gentle practices? So let's do a few more of those ones we just did. Our arms are coming up, our legs are bending. Breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, and breathing out. Moving our legs about shoulder width apart. We're going to bend down again. Listen to your body for doing this. We're just going to go down with our knees bent to touch our toes. Maybe within and out breaths, 
extending out the back of our legs without breaths. Breathing in, we squat a little, breathing out. In yoga practices, this marriage of doing and non-doing, mind and body, masculine, feminine, this joining or yoking, we're wanting to do it with a huge amount of awareness and kindness to our bodies. Now it's coming back. Stand again. And even as we stand, though too, this is a yoga practice. If you settle back down, see if you might find four points on each foot, big toe, little toe, inside of the heel, outside of the heel. And see if you can actually have each of these supporting your body relatively equally, each carrying its own portion of the load. Again, your knees are slightly open, the pelvis is released. Breath is coming and going normally and naturally. Curiosity, kindness, and your awareness as you attend to your body. And waiting for a release, which are gifts, never achievements, never some kind of accomplishment. We don't fall, we don't accomplish a stretch by pushing ourselves. We drop into a bit of a stretch when our body releases. And we're going to breathe in. Bring our arms up through the center here. Reach over our head. Breathe out. Breathe in. And breathing out. Now you don't have to do this with me as my breath and movement will be different than yours. Do it with your body. We'll do it for a few times here. Pausing. Feeling into your body again. Offer yourself a certain amount of gratitude. Appreciation for even taking a little time to be with your body, in your body, aware of your body, listening to it. We're so much in our heads, so much at work somewhere else. But in yoga practices and all mindfulness practices, we're here now with kindness. Now let's bring up our arms from the outside, breathing in. And breathing out, pushing out all the air in your belly, breathing in, breathing out.
pausing with this. Again, do nothing, but feel around in your body again. What's your body like now? Has it warmed up any since we started doing these? Is it looser? If your body tells you it's better to be doing these sitting down, are you listening to it? And if your body tells you it wants to do a little bit more of any one of these, let's make this next uh, few minutes a yoga choices practice that from any of the practices we just did or some that you know of your own in standing yoga and stretches. Listen to your body. What does it want to do? Does it want some help stretching this way or that way? What does it want? What is it like? Coming back to stillness, if you will, and let's just play with our practice a little bit more, and maybe do a little balancing practice if that's right for you. And you can do that just by putting all your attention, all your weight onto one foot with your other foot turned out at a 45 degree angle. And Every so often, maybe picking up that foot that's at the 45-degree angle to see where your balance is. And if it's right for you, take the other foot all the way off the ground. How does your body like that? Or do you have any sense of balance there? What's it like to try to balance Let's do the other foot. Find all four points again. Sometimes it helps to find a little point on the floor 
about four, three feet ahead of you. And have that as a still point. It gives you some place of stillness anyway. Back to center again. And we're going to just stay for a few more minutes here and do a little scan of our body. You look first into the toes and feet. Ankles, calves. knees, upper parts of your legs. Curious, kind attention, what do you feel here? As you stand, do you still have a sense of all four points in each foot, eight points all together? pelvis, buttocks, belly, lower back. How do these feel after these very simple, gentle, standing yoga practices? Where's your breath? Is it your belly or your chest? Is it coming through your nostrils or your mouth? Is a in-breath a little longer than out-breath or vice versa. Is your belly moving or is your chest moving? All the way up through your back, feel into your shoulders. Notice the difference if you have your eyes closed or open and being in your body like this with awareness. And offer yourself a certain amount of gratitude deep appreciation for just taking the time to be with your body and in your body with this kind of awareness and kindness, which in itself is perhaps something we rarely do. Gratitude, appreciation to ourselves for coming here, putting this time and energy into this marriage of mind and body of loving-kindness and awareness. So breathing in real deeply now, and breathing out. One more very deep in-breath, and another out-breath, and one more big in-breath, and as you breathe out, allowing your eyes to open if they've been closed, and we're about ready to take a five-minute break so that you may get a drink or use the facilities if you want. 
Thank you for joining in the mindful yoga practice.
So thank you for coming back. And um, we're going to do a body scan meditation. This is one of the very first primary practices that are, is taught in MBSR. And essentially, people practice the body scan for about one month. So at home, they're practicing six times a week, a 45-minute guided body scan. And um, you are welcome to do it lying down. We often recommend people to do this lying down, though seated is fine as well. I know that there's a bunch of... I'm sitting on a pillow that's called a zabuton, and there's many zabutons in there, and if any of you want to put a couple aside and lie down, and maybe I'll just say one thing. If you're really tired, probably better to sit up or even stand. <laughs> But um, we're going to do a body scan, so you're welcome to lie down if you like, if you can stay awake. <clears throat> we'll just start in a few moments. No, you need to get settled. And so getting yourself in a position where you can be comfortable and awake. That's essentially the, the teachings of the posture, is to be comfortable and awake. Yeah. If anyone has an extra Zabutan to share, please feel free to to bring it. If not, it's okay. So if anyone needs a Zabutan, raise your hand because it's a nice person that wants to share. There you go. So getting into a position that you can be awake and comfortable. Good innovation. So as I was mentioning earlier while we're still getting organized here that you know MBSR is composed of these formal practices, the body scan that we're going to do now, sitting meditation later, awareness of breathing that we've already done a bit of, and mindful yoga, walking meditation. And there's these various presentational themes that come up during the eight weeks, and Steve introduced a little bit about perception. And of course, there's 
some presentational themes on stress reactivity that's fueled by uh, these old patterns, unawareness, and the difference when we become mindful and that we can respond. John Kabat-Zinn calls it a mindfulness-mediated stress response. We'll speak about these later, but just to let you know, there's various presentational themes on perception, as I said, and stress reactivity, mindful responding, bringing mindfulness to communication. These are important elements that are taught within MBSR. How to work with pain, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Because it might almost feel a little bit counterintuitive. Why would I want to bring my mindfulness to pain? I want to get away from it. And so it's important to understand that um, maybe if we bring more attention into the body, we'll see that um, we might be actually getting tighter. Just like that example Steve said of that person recognizing that um, they were grinding their teeth most of the time. So instead of beginning to get connected, you might begin to discover that you might have a pain in one area of body, but you're grinding your teeth in another area, or you're holding tightly in your neck and shoulders. Because sometimes our natural response to pain is to get tight around it. And in mindfulness, we're learning actually to get soft around it. To begin to acknowledge the physical sensations that are within the body and let them ripple or resonate wherever they need to go, giving them space. And of course, living with pain can produce a lot of different emotions, anger, sadness, fear, shame, confusion. And the practice also invites us to begin to acknowledge these different emotions. doesn't mean that you have to accept the pain, but beginning to acknowledge the sadness, the anger, the fear. And also very important to remember that mindfulness is a teaching of being present and that sometimes when we have pain, we begin to ruminate, perhaps begin to catastrophize how the pain is going to be. What am I going to do? So not only sometimes we begin to deal with the pain that's happening now, but we project on how it's going to be this afternoon, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, the rest of my life, and that becomes a catastrophizing, adding a lot of stress. So coming back into the moment, let me be with this pain this moment. If I'm alive in the next moment, I'll deal with it then when I get there. Coming into the now. So taking a moment and feeling into the body. There's a teaching within Buddhism. It's from the Buddha, a beautiful few lines that he says that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. A fathom is a maritime measurement, measuring the depth of of the, of the sea, the ocean, and so the, it's about six feet or so. So within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions lies our world. Its beginning, its end, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. So the body scan is a practice of moving into the body, 
Acknowledging what's present physically, mentally, or emotionally. Tending to the body, becoming present to the body. Martha Elliott says that our history is here inside our body, and our body is our storehouse of all of our learnings and thoughts and experiences. And so just beginning to mindfully breathe in and out. For now, there's no other place to go, nothing else to do, no one that you have to be. Just taking our lives one breath at a time, being present. Breathing in and breathing out. And now gently withdrawing from the breath and bringing awareness into the left foot and beginning particularly at that point of contact where you feel the left foot on the floor. Sitting in the chair might be the bottom of the heel. Lying down could be the back of the heel or the side of the heel, the side of the foot. Wherever you feel that point of contact, that is the beginning spot. That place brings you into the world of contact, of sensation. And as we do the body scan, just sensing and feeling into the body. This is not like a visualization. And we're not trying to think about the part. Of course, directing awareness to each part and sensing and feeling into it. And of course, they can be pleasant feelings or unpleasant or sometimes neither pleasant nor unpleasant, more neutral-like feelings. And just to acknowledge, this is what's so. Just like a meteorologist just reports the weather. Just what's there. 
This applies not only to the physical, because at times as we sense into the body, it may evoke at times different thoughts and emotions. And may we also acknowledge those. So sensing into the left foot, and that point of contact to the sole of the, of the foot, the top of the foot. Feeling into the toes, the foot, the back of the right foot, and up into the right ankle being present. <clears throat> And then letting awareness extend upwards from the right foot and ankle into the lower right leg, into the front of it, into the back of it, to the sides, into the inside and its connection from the lower right leg into the right knee being present. Just acknowledging, scanning the body, what is being felt? Acknowledging what's there. And of course, if you discover that your mind has wandered off, just acknowledging the wanderings and coming back, lower right leg into the knee, being present. <clears throat> And just letting the awareness extend upwards from the lower right leg and knee into the upper right leg, into the thigh. Feeling into the front and the back, the sides, the inside and its connection into the right hip. Sensing and feeling into the body, acknowledging what's felt physically and what perhaps may get evoked mentally or emotionally in letting be.
And then just letting the awareness extend across into the other hip. I realize I may have been getting a little confused with my rights and lefts. So just sensing into this one leg and the hip. And then coming down the other leg into the thigh. Connection into the knee. And from the knee into the lower leg. The front, the back, the insides. It's connection into the ankle, into the foot, as we begin to sense and feel into each of the feet and the legs and into the hips, being present. The right side, the left side, Feeling that connection of the left foot into the left ankle, the lower left leg, the knee, the thigh, into the left hip. And sensing and feeling, of course, the right foot, its point of contact. Into the right ankle, the lower right leg, the front, the back, the sides, the inside, into the right knee and above into the thigh, its front and back, the sides, the inside, into the right hip, sensing and feeling into these feet, legs, and just allowing and acknowledging whatever is present physically, mentally, or emotionally, and letting it be. And now letting our awareness just begin to center into the hips, into the pelvic girdle, and the organs within of elimination, reproduction, sexuality, the pelvic ball, the buttocks, the genital region, within the hips. And of course, these organs of Elimination are plumbed up above to the large intestine, to the bladder, 
to the organs of digestion and assimilation. The large and small intestines, the stomach, the liver, the spleen, the pancreas. The digestive organs. So sensing and feeling into the belly, into our guts. Of course, there's the kidneys as well, these blood purifiers, all working together, sensing into the abdominal region and acknowledging whatever's arising, any sensations, any thoughts, any emotions, and just letting it be. Now letting awareness shift from the belly into the tailbone, the base of the spine, just sensing into this area in the lower back, and then just gradually letting awareness rise up the vertebrae into the middle, and and gradually into the upper back, and just sensing sensations, just letting them, giving them space, letting them ripple as if like throwing a rock into a pool of water and just the rippling of sensations, giving space to what's present physically, mentally, or emotionally, and letting be, sensing and feeling into the back. Allowing. Just inviting in these qualities as you sense into the body of curiosity, investigation, and just acknowledging what's so into the back.
And as we feel into the back, letting the awareness as well enter into the chest. And of course, within the center of the chest, home of our system of circulation of the heart, ventilation of the lungs, the rib cage, this protective shield of these vital organs, the skin of the chest, the breasts. So sensing into the chest, acknowledging whatever is present, the body, the mind, the heart, just allowing, letting be, sensing into the chest with awareness. to the left shoulder and the armpit beneath. Just sensing into the shoulder, the armpit, and then coming down gradually into the upper left arm. Front, the back, the sides, the inside, its connection into the left elbow being present. upper left arm and elbow extending downwards into the forearm and the left wrist. Just sensing into the forearm, the front and the back, the inside. It's connection into the wrist. And it's connection from the wrist into the left hand the palm of the hand, the top of the hand, the fingers and thumb being present. And then from the left hand, bringing awareness into the right hand, the palm, the top of the hand, the fingers and thumb, 
feeling and sensing into the right hand and of course its connection into the right wrist being present. And then letting awareness extend upwards from the right hand and wrist into the right forearm, its connection into the right elbow, the front and the back, the sides, the inside, the forearm, its connection into the elbow. And then extending upwards from the right forearm and elbow into the upper right arm and its connection into the shoulder. So sensing and feeling again into the front and back, the insides. Coming into the right shoulder and the armpit beneath. Now letting awareness extend across from the right shoulder into the left shoulder as we begin to feel both shoulders. And just again allowing whatever sensations are present in the shoulders. And at your own pace extending upwards of course these shoulders are connected to the neck and throat. Sensing into the neck and throat as well. And of course this neck and throat is connected to the head, particularly beginning with the mouth, the jaw joint, the teeth, the tongue, the lips the chin below. So sensing into the mouth, into the jaw, which is of course one of the most exercised joints of the body, home of how we take in food, or communication. So sensing into the jaw, and again, whatever sensations are present, just letting them ripple or resonate wherever they need to go, giving space, allow the jaw, the teeth, the mouth, the chin below.
And letting awareness gradually extend into the face, the cheeks of the face. The nose, the sinus passages. Into the eyes and the muscles around the eyes. into the forehead and the temples of the head as we begin to feel into the facial structure from the inside to the outside, feeling into the face with awareness. from the face, feeling into the top and then into the back of the head. And into these ears that hear these words that go into the inside of the head, into the brain. Feeling into this face and head, the center of so many of our senses of the eyes that see, the nose that smells, the tongue that tastes, the ears that hear, the different sensations, and of course is the brain, the center of the central nervous system. It has its extensions through the nervous system from head to toes to fingertips. Just feeling that sense of the face and the head and that it is indeed connected to what is below, to the neck and throat. So sense and feel that connection into the neck and throat from the face and head, into the neck and throat and through the shoulders into the arms and hands, into the back, into the chest, into the belly, into the hips, and down each of the legs, into the feet, as you begin to extend and expand the field of awareness, connecting from the head, to the torso, to the arms and hands, to the hips, to the legs to the feet from head to toes to fingertips, one unified organism. And as you breathe in, feeling the sense of that unification of the whole body expanding like a balloon that's inflating on the inhalation and deflating on the exhalation. Sense that ebb and flow of the breath in and the breath out, the whole body organism as it breathes in and breathes out.
Our history is here inside our body. So I'd like to just end by telling a story that was once told on NPR. I often tell this story after the end of the body scan. In the very first class, class number one, the first class of the MBSR program. And it's about a sculptor who was commissioned by a federal agency to build a very large globe of the earth. And it was nearing completion. It was an incredibly beautiful, smooth, marble-like sphere. And unfortunately, the sculptor had a catastrophic accident and became paralyzed from the waist down. And this began a very difficult journey of physical and occupational therapy because it was, of course, a crisis of the body. And it was also, of course, a crisis of the spirit. So as well as getting the physical and occupational therapy, the sculptor was getting support spiritually and psychologically. After about a year or so, the sculptor actually experienced some deep insight and some healing. The healing and insight pertained to the spiritual and psychological, and the body remained paralyzed from the waist down. But with this um, deeper understanding, insight, the sculptor had an idea and wanted to finish the globe and had wanted to make some modifications. And the federal authorities found out that the sculptor wanted to finish it. They were very happy. And so the sculptor called in a crane operator and also got assistance with other people to help support the project. And the crane operator was to pick the globe up into the air because it was a very large object. And then the sculptor asked the crane operator to release it. And it came tumbling down to the ground and got smashed and dented and all types of things. And um, then the sculptor got out a welding torch along with uh, the assistants, and they re-welded that globe together. And they were instructed to leave the seams of the welding in the globe, and they were to be included as part of the topography of the globe. And the sculptor finished it and came out looking pretty nice, but very different than the marble-like sphere that it once was, finely painted and so forth. And put it underneath, put it behind a curtain and called in the federal officials, and they were very excited to hear that it had been done. They had no idea what um, happened to it. And the sculptor said, I, I'm going to unveil the globe in just a few minutes, but I want you to know there's been some changes since you last saw it. And, they said, okay, okay, and they didn't really think twice about it, and the curtain was unveiled, and uh, all of the federal officials' jaws kind of dropped. Finally, one said, well, well, what happened to the other globe? And the sculptor said, and I asked, I did make some changes, and it's actually kind of a, a reflection of the healing work that I've done 
As you know, I've become a paraplegic. And I'll let you know, as he said to the federal officials, I can change the globe um, back to the way that it was, but maybe uh, if you hear what I call this globe, you'll understand, and so just know that, and um, we can make do. I can change it back if you like. And so they said, all right, well, what do you call this globe? And the crane operator said, I mean, the sculptor said, call this globe shattered but whole. Shattered but whole. A year ago when I had my accident, I became completely shattered, the sculptor said, and I've discovered through this journey of deep pain and letting go my wholeness as a human being. I know for many of us, we have our own shatterings in life. What really, really, really brings us here is our human condition. The inevitabilities of aging, illness, death, separation. What is this life? And so we also want to affirm that with MBSR that there's more right with you than wrong with you and that within us are resources of potential healing and freedom that we can begin to discover within. Latsu, the great... Um, sage of the Tao. He says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And so yes, just wanting to infirm this journey inside and that there's more right with you than wrong with you. These resources within, just as as an outer example, Michelangelo looked at this block of marble and saw David standing inside and just chipped some of it away. So as we breathe in and breathe out, just feeling that unification of the body, inhaling, exhaling, feeling this body, expanding on the inhalation, falling on the exhalation, connected as a whole organism, alive and awake. Breathing in and breathing out. And so we'll just have some silence for another minute or two to be with your own heart. Let's hear physically or mentally or emotionally and allow.
And as we come to an end of this practice, taking a moment just to acknowledge this time, being with your own body, mind, and heart. And may we all dwell with peace. May all beings be at peace. gently wiggling fingers and toes and opening the eyes and just feeling that sense of aliveness, a wakefulness, presence. And what we're going to do is um, now form some small groups of maybe three or four people at most and to discuss how this practice of the body scan was, what was your experience, what did you notice, perhaps some learnings or challenges. What I'd like to suggest is that um, as we break into groups of threes or fours, that uh, one person first speak at a time, more of like a monologue, and the other two or three people, your job is just to listen to empathically listen, certainly find a smile. You don't have to look like Mr. Spock in Star Trek. But just, just maybe at first one person each have their turn to speak about what their experience is, and then after everyone has had their turn, find to open up to a more normal conversation with the speaking and listening, and just really you know, bringing our mindfulness to our speech, to listen. Remember, two ears, one mouth. <laughs> So why don't we just, uh, by geographic location, I'd, I'd suggest rather than two people, at least three and maybe four. And we'll do this for about maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then we'll come back to a large group, have some discussion, and then we'll have lunch. So thank you so much. So gathering together. And if you're having some challenges finding a group to be in, raise your hand, and we'll help sort you. Okay, so getting yourself set, and maybe uh, the person who has the shortest hair goes first. <laughs> you guys are going to have to measure.
So about five more minutes, five more minutes, five more minutes. So thanking your compadres and maybe coming back to your chairs. Thank you so much. So we're going to have about 20 minutes to um, um, just hear what some of your experiences are. So bringing some of the conversation from the small groups into the large group. And there will be a couple of people that will be bringing the microphones. And we'll please wait till the microphone gets in your hand so that we all can hear, be our practice. So yeah, I want to just hear the, um, the body scan, any of the practices this morning, and just um, what's, what's your experience, or any learnings, or any questions. Anybody's mind wander while you were meditating? Raise your hand. Okay, so we can establish the universality of wandering mind. And actually, just to say, this is one of the very first insights we get when we practice mindfulness. If we were not mindful, we wouldn't even know that our mind was wandering. And so just to begin to become aware of how much this mind wanders is an important information. So, um, you know, and there's a, there's a beautiful... Uh, 
teaching from a Christian mystic, St. Francis de Sales, and he says, if your mind or heart wanders, he was a meditator, he says, bring it back quite gently. And if you did nothing for the whole of your hour, but bring it back every time it went off, which seemed like every other moment, he says your hour would still be well employed. So I think that's a very beautiful way of holding the practice. Even if it's gone off every other moment, you become aware of it, you bring it back, your hour would be well employed. So that's a very kind way of practicing. I'm going to speak more about this approach of practicing with kindness. Maybe I'll just say one thing about it and then open it up. Uh, Pema Children has a very beautiful teaching. She's a Tibetan teacher and speaks about training a dog. And, you know, you want to get a dog to sit, to stay, to lie down. And you can train it very rigidly, very tightly, very angrily, and it will learn those commands. And those types of dogs sometimes get very neurotic and confused. And by contrast, you could train a dog to sit, to lie down, to stay with a lot of kindness. It will learn those commands. And those types of dogs often become more confident and flexible. And so even in the training of meditation, we can sometimes bring that sense of aggression right to the cushion. I'm not doing it right. One teacher says, how about meditation as an act of love rather than an act of self-aggression that wraps our lives in a knot? So I wanted to speak about kindness. Puppy training, also called puppy training. Never beat up the puppy. So let's see if um, any hands to share anything, and there'll be a microphone will be brought to you. We'll kind of just go back and forth. And say your name, too. That's helpful. I'm Karen. And uh, I want to say from when I first came in here, where I was a little scared, uh, apprehensive, um, that kind of stuff. And then I'm sitting here on the floor talking with these four people that I want to have high tea with. <laughs> yeah, the sense of community. Very nice. Thank you. Anyone on this side? Hand up. If your heart's starting to thump a bit, that's saying, yeah, you need the mic. <laughs> Please. Yeah, just um, this... Your, your name? Uh, Nick. Yeah. So just the sense that you... Um, your mind wanders and that's really okay, what you're just saying about the kindness piece, that's really... I've heard that before, and it's just helpful to know, because sometimes when you come to a place like this and you think you're supposed to have it all straightened out, you shouldn't have a problem with keeping your mind focused, right? It's beautiful. So to have that permission, in a way, to let yourself just know that that's going to happen and come back is really powerful. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. It's actually predictable, and if you're even upstairs in the retreat, up the way where the intensive retreats, if there was a little bubble that could extend out from the person that's meditating, because you're looking out like, wow, everyone must really have it together, and they're looking at you thinking that you have it together because their minds are wandering as well. And so, um, yeah, the attitude of training with kindness is very important. The mind will wander. This is just what it does. As a matter of fact, I'll just say that... um, And it was very relieving for me... um, 
in these teachings of mindfulness, the Buddha taught four foundations, the mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling tones, mindfulness of the mind states, mindfulness of the dharmas, which are teachings. And within the teachings, the very first teaching is how to work with the challenges that come up in meditation. So it's actually written in the meditation manuals. And, and they specifically speak about, ah, oh, we get some visitors. <laughs> Hello. Um, they specifically speak about what's known as the five hindrances. And these are, for example, when you're sitting and meditating and you're just lost in wanting. You look around, you see somebody's scarf, and you think, oh, I wonder if they sell that scarf at the, at the meditation store. Or maybe that person's breathing too loud, aversion. So this wanting can arise, not wanting. Aversion can arise. Um, restlessness can arise. Sleepiness can arise. Feeling doubtful, like, gosh, every, I've heard all about mindfulness, but I don't know if it's going to help me. And so it's very predictable when we meditate how normal it is to be filled at times with all these wants or all these aversions or sleepiness or doubt or restlessness. So I want to just name them as totally normal. And so, yeah, and so we're working with ourselves. This is part of the mind training. It's very normal. We, we don't have to, we certainly don't have to have it all together to be here. This is the training ground. This is school. This is a practice. You know, in a baby, to learn to, to, for us to become bipeds and walk, we had to fall on our butts quite a lot before we finally got up on our two feet, you know? So it's a practice. May we train with great kindness. And, you know, and if you don't believe me, you cannot do it with kindness. I, I, I lived like that for about 20 years in my practice, and then finally, after about 20 years, I realized hitting my head against the wall was really not serving. Maybe I should approach it from kindness. Hi, I'm Pam. And um, I have two things. One is an experience I had during the practice, and then the other is a question that came up in our group. Um, so the first thing was I just I, I found it very powerful um, and was surprised that there was an emotional side to it. I expected to just be very relaxed and kind of in my body and having it be very physical. But when we were focusing on areas where I had injury, I became very angry and also scared. And that was kind of just new for me to recognize that there was anger around mm. that pain mm. and the frustration and the loss that came with the injury and that sort of thing. So thank you. That was, it was very releasing because eventually it sort of eased. Um, I was able to move through it to some degree. Um, but the question that came up in our group was what to do with pain when you land on a spot in the body mm. that hurts or when there's a spot in the body that hurts and everyone else has moved on to a different part of the body but that's still talking to you. And it, having that as a distraction to the meditation and what you're supposed to do with that. So. Well, actually, this is something that comes up a lot. As many people are working with pain and coming into an MBSR class, some of the things that uh, you may notice, though, as you just did that when you find that there's a certain emotion connected to it, like anger or fear, that also this can contribute to the pain equation. And a really wonderful quote from Viktor Frankl talks about between the stimulus and the response, there's a space, and in that space lies our power, our freedom. So here's the stimulus. 
And quickly, there's a reaction. I hate this. I wish it would go away. I don't want this. And whatever internal dialogue, whatever emotion comes with it, we also know that these emotions have an influence we see on the pain itself. And again and again, we return to this experience. We go, oh, oh, we see how I'm inflaming it. And this work of uh, responding with kindness, not only are you starting to bring kindness to something that you've hated maybe for a long time or you've feared for a long time, that kindness itself changes things. So every time we come back with kindness, with love, we're actually growing in kindness and love. We're putting more energy into what we do want than what we don't want, which you could say is watering the seeds of happiness rather than the seeds of suffering. And again and again, you'll hear people talk about long-term pain that is subsiding. It's a surprise to them. And another thing other people have tried is not even using the word pain anymore to discard it. What other ways could you describe this sensation? Is it a pounding? Is it an aching? Is it a searing? Is it a jabbing? What is it? Is it a red? Is it a tan? Give it any other name, because pain itself has a connotation that is like aversive. But you start just being with things as they are. One of the most beautiful quotes I love from John Kabat-Zinn, Full Catastrophe Living, is healing is coming to terms with things the way they are. Because some pains aren't just going to go away. They're going to be there. I've got some that stay with me and have been a part of my life for a long time. And how do we, um, in part of this practice is to give space. Our impulse at times is to get tight. And so we might notice that tightness, and can we just let that space of that sensation just ripple, give it space. Give it space to what's there, give it space emotionally, the anger, the sadness, the fear, the confusion, allow. It's very different when we begin to meet experience and Acknowledging, maybe acknowledging how much I'm scared of this. I hate this. Letting it be. And as far as um, you asked the, the end question, but what if we're moving on and I'm still with my right knee? And so, you know, sometimes that happens and maybe we need to be longer in that right knee because it's calling our attention. And so just trust the practice as we begin to uh, work with it and to stay there and then... You know, at a certain point, you might begin to wonder, oh, I wonder where they are now on the body scan, over the left shoulder. So at that point, just shiftly move to the left shoulder. It's not like you have to like, start going through all the body and miss all the parts so you miss. Just join in again. So you're just trusting what's unfolding and emerging. But our relationship to pain is, um, you know, pain, first of all, is part of our human condition. It cannot be denied. But how do we begin to meet it? How do we learn how to go with it rather than putting your energy into fighting it. It's not easy what we're talking about. This is not easy. But also watching how you can begin to catastrophize and that, and that can actually exacerbate the pain. Some years ago I had this pinched nerve when I saw my doctor. He said I had a radiculopathy and I told him that was ridiculous. But it extended this nerve pain down my arm into my hand and at times, I would have fantasies of going to get my chainsaw and cutting my left arm off. Not good having those type of fantasies. But I began to notice 
when I had the chainsaw fantasies, it was always associated with the future. I was catastrophizing. How was I going to deal with it later? It got too much. That's why sometimes I don't even like the word, the identification of chronic pain, because it's almost like a life sentence. Can I just be with the pain this moment? If I'm alive in the next moment, I'll deal with that pain when I get there. And as I began to work with that pain in my the, the pinched nerve, and just let me just be with this pain this moment, I could prevent this cascade of future um, catastrophizing. And the chainsaw fantasies gradually began to diminish. And actually, in time, the pinched nerve began to settle out. I mean, every now and again, there's still some twinges. But how do we begin to develop a relationship with pain? Not easy, physically, mentally, and emotionally. But we're, we're we wanting to investigate with our practice, to investigate what's my relationship with this. And it's so important to honor, sometimes if I'm feeling like I just hate it, I, and that needs to be acknowledged. I'm sad, I'm scared, that needs to be acknowledged. We're not saying you have to accept it, but can I begin to acknowledge how much this is hard? And even that acknowledgement sets a different condition than investing our energy in fighting and resisting. The more that we resist, the more it persists. Like Chinese handcuffs. Yeah. So there's a hand back here. Let's wait, please, for the mic. sense of understanding when you say maybe a little closer please when you say um, allow some space to be between the physical pain and the reaction and a good sense of understanding when it's emotional pain like grief or hurt or fear one of my challenges is when it's mental like obsessing or anxiety if it feels like I can't find the space, and I wonder if there's a different approach. Mm-hmm. You know that um, there was something Bob just said that I think is worth uh, developing a little further. Uh, as, a, as a basis of uh, mindfulness practice, there's some attitudes that we work to cultivate. One of them is non-judging. Uh, another is allowing. Now, we say that rather than accepting because some things are just too hard to accept and just feel totally unacceptable. Allowing, because it is here. And whether I want it or not, or like it or not, it's not going to make it go away. So allowing is at least gives me a chance to come to terms with it somehow, to work with it somehow. Another important element is letting be. Also very different than letting go, because some things are hard to let go of, too. And so that again and again, I'm cultivating these intentions. And, and I'm noticing that the thought processes and the things I want and don't want, that I like and don't like, how, how they're affecting this whole pain equation. And I'm not striving to get rid of it. And I'm, I'm not judging it as... And I'm not catastrophizing it. And I'm not futurizing it. There is a very real relationship to this piece that Bob was sharing about the future. This is going to be with me forever. And, I, and it's going to ruin my life. And know then that the thoughts about a condition contribute to the condition. Uh, we'll be talking about this a little later as we talk about the brain science. But 
some very interesting recent studies in the last uh, few months show that every emotional, mental illness has one thing in common that can be actually witnessed in the brain. What do you guys guess it is? Ruminating. Ruminating, ruminating. Going over it again and again and again. One of my, one of my clients, a, a, a rancher, told me that that's what cattle do when they, they're eating grass and they get their first stomach full and they lay down and throw that back up in their mouth and chew it some more with new juices. And he says it stinks to high heaven. Not even the most seasoned rancher can get near them. I call it stinking thinking. Stinking thinking. And I'm doing it again. And oh my God, it's just like a, 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 it's like a, a cassette tape going again and again. And work again and again. Just come back to be with things as they are. It's not easy. None of this practice is easy. If we're really going to take this on, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. Because your mind wants to do anything but be here and allow and non-strive. So it's getting to our time to um, have lunch, so we'll pause here. And, um, you know, and Steve said it's one of the hardest things, but it may also be one of the most rewarding. As Franz Kafka once said, you have suffering and you have your choice in one if you want to deal with it or not. But if you don't deal with it, then you have two sufferings. So it feels more efficient to deal with the suffering. And um, just to let you know, um, so it's 12.30 now. We'll meet back here promptly at 1.30 to begin and invite you, um, of course, as a community, if you want to eat with others, it's fine. If you prefer to eat solo, you're welcome to do so. And, and maybe you can even just be mindful of that first bite of food, the chewing, tasting, swallowing. And, of course, this food is what keeps the head here, the body here, the nails, teeth, the skin, and all these organs going. So may we be grateful for this food that we are going to be eating. And uh, we'll meet back at, at uh, 1.30. And I think I'll just end with a, a reading. And it's kind of apropos of what we've just been talking about. And it's called Allow by Dana Falls. She says, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt or try to contain a tornado. If you dam a stream, it may create a new channel. Resist, and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success, and when loss rips off the doors of your heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair. The practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, a whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist, and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. Thank you all very much. Bon appétit. And we'll see you in one hour. And as I said, you could eat in here, outside, or as you like. 
And taking in the beauty of this land, Spirit Rock land is so beautiful. And those um, animals, they've been here for generations. They know this is a safe place.
So welcome, everyone. Welcome back. And um, we'll just sit for a couple of minutes just to again arrive into the fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions that lies our world. Its beginning, its ending, its path to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. So I want to end with just a very brief reflection and then I want to speak about uh, mindfulness and stress reduction. So I want you just to reflect upon um, maybe a, a recent unpleasant event and it doesn't have to be a, in a scale of 1 to 10, a 10 or a 9 or an 8. It could even be a 3 or a 4 everyday stresses or challenges and just reflecting upon how that affects you in your body and your thoughts and emotions A short reflection. Just, um, ooh, this is not sounding good. Get close to that thing over here. I want to know when you have an, a stressful event, an unpleasant event, what type of thoughts, 
gonna move this over too. What type of thoughts enter your mind when there's something unpleasant happening? What would be, please? It shouldn't be this way. Okay, I was just gonna write down a few notes. Shouldn't be this way. What else? My fault. My fault. How about your fault? <laughs> what was that? Not fair. Not fair. You guys are good. Got to get out of here. What else? I hate this. I'm not safe. Growing up. Maybe one more, please. What is this clown going to do next? <laughs> okay, so when you have these type of thoughts, what's this clown going to do next? I hate this. Not fair. It's your fault. It's my fault. Shouldn't be this way. What type of emotions does that evoke inside you? So I heard anger. What else? Fear. Anxiety. Resentment. Shame. Sadness. Oh, you guys are so good. Frustration. Aggressiveness. Overwhelm, hurt, help, futility, guilt. Okay, it's a good list. And, and we can add more to it, just like we can add a lot of thoughts. And so the question is, when you have thoughts like it shouldn't be this way, or it's my fault, or it's your fault, it's not fair... Um, What's this clown going to do next? And you feel anger, fear, anxiety, resentment, shame, sadness, frustration, aggression, overwhelm, hurt, help, futility, guilt. How does that feel in your body? What's that? How does it feel, the physical sensation? Hmm? Contracted, so I'll kind of draw a line. What's that? Tightness where? In the chest. In the, chest. Neck, the, back. the neck, the back, gut, the head. head. What's that? Heart, shoulders, hands. Where else? Anybody get it in the jaw? And maybe diarrhea, get sweating, get cold, get hot. So this is just a very simple illustration just to show the power of our thoughts and emotions and how it affects our body. So um, this is why mindfulness can play a very important role in um, stress reduction. I'm 
wondering, the microphone, does it sound bad out there or is it just me and feedback? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not that close right now. I was, but it's, feel, it's, it's echoing now as well. So I want to just mention a couple of things that, um, first of all, you know, str- uh, <laughs> stress is part of our human condition, so there's no getting around it. And there's actually some stresses that, you know, can be potentially beneficial. You go to the gym, you work out, you're stressing your heart rate, but you're actually, um, you know, strengthening your heart muscle. And certain types of stresses that get us excited, the buildup of adrenaline, we're doing a creative project. But perhaps it's when the stress turns into distress, these are the markers to begin to pay attention to. And also we'll say that historically, stress is part of our biology to survive on the planet. That's why it said that perhaps we are wired more to remember unpleasant things, and the neuropsychologists and neuroscientists will say that it's more like Velcro. We remember uncomfortable things because part of it's wired into our biology, and the pleasant events actually are more like Teflon. They kind of slide off, and that's why some neuroscientists say that you actually have to reflect upon a pleasant event and hold it for about 10 seconds till it begins to imprint into the mind and the heart. But, you know, there's a certain value in this biology of keeping us safe because this is these two mythical um, prehistoric clans, the Igs and the Ogs, and Ig had no fear of Tyrannosaurus rexus. And so it turns out that we are all descendants of Ogs. There's no more Igs left. And so, you know, the sense of remembering to keep ourselves safe is vitally important. But when the stress turns into distress or Lazarus, the stress resources, when the, when, the, when the demands exceed the resources, we get depleted. And it's very powerful to look at that, like the power of our thoughts, the power of our emotions, the power of how these thoughts and emotions affect our physiology is very important. And neuroscientists, we understand that there's neural pathways, connections between our thoughts and emotions and how it affects the body. And so it's very important in the practices of mindfulness. And, you know, we hear this word, mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's a big, long word. But what does mindfulness, how does it relate to stress reduction? So this is what I really want to point to. And again, if indeed the power of our mind, our thoughts and emotions affects our body, it may be very helpful for us to become more aware of the thoughts that we think about. So I want to actually show you another um, diagram. Actually, it looks like this thing is cooperating right now. And so this actually comes from um, Dr. Gary Schwartz, who John Kabat-Zinn writes about in his book, Full Catastrophe Living. And this is a simplified version of what he calls a health systems feedback loop. And it's, it's, it's essentially an equation. And so the equation says that when we're unaware, we're disconnected from our experience. And when we're disconnected from our experience, we can begin to spin out of balance. For example, where if you live in the Bay Area, <clears throat> you certainly know about getting in traffic from time to time. And so sometimes we get in traffic or we pick what we think is the fastest line in the supermarket, and it's a line from hell and we'll never get out of there. What am I going to do? And you know, we get ourselves stuck in traffic from time to time, waiting. 
And when we're unaware, we're disconnected, and we begin to spin out of balance and how it might play itself out in traffic is, since I'm unaware, I may, may begin to hold the steering wheel so tightly that my knuckles are turning white. And, as, and this is, of course, increasing muscle skeletal tension in the body. And as I get irritated and angry because I'm going to be late and what's going on here, quite often when we get anxious, angry, we begin to breathe more rapidly and more irregularly. With the increase of our respiration, it forces our heart rate and blood pressure, temperature of our body to elevate, and we can get ourselves actually into quite a big of a stress reaction. And we're just stuck there on Highway 101. We don't even have any idea that we're white knuckling. We don't have any idea that we've raised our blood pressure, our heart rates increased, and so forth, because we're lost in our reactivity. And so we speak about why is mindfulness play a strategic role, and Steve mentioned earlier <clears throat> that beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl, where he speaks about that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom to choose. Many times we don't see the spaces between our reactions because we have so much impulsive, habitual patterns of reactivity. But as we become mindful, we begin to see that we have a choice. So MBSR really points to the difference between reactivity which is based on unawareness and um, responding. So there's a big difference between mindless reactivity and mindful responding. John Kabat-Zinn calls it a mindfulness-mediated uh, stress response. That when we become aware, we have more resources, more information. We can begin to respond to the situation in a much more constructive way Whereas if we're unaware and we're reactive, we can react in a non-productive and sometimes even in a destructive way, particularly if we begin to develop maladaptive coping styles to deal with stress or smoking or alcohol or you know, certain types of behaviors that are known to be detrimental to health and well-being. And we develop these as coping styles. And so we want to develop more adaptive coping styles rather than maladaptive ones. And so with this very simple diagram, so here's, again, this loop of unawareness brings disconnection. Disconnection brings out of balance. And if we, if I have a chalkboard, I could erase this. It looks a little bit nicer. But when, when, we, when we become aware, we immediately have a connection. If the lights are out, I can't see anything. I turn on the light. There's connection. I can see where it is that I am. The moment prior, I'm holding on the steering wheel so tightly, my knuckles are turning white. The light comes on of awareness, of mindfulness. Oh, I'm having a stress reaction. Oh, I'm mindful now. Oh, I'm holding the steering wheel so tightly. Now that I know this, I, I have more information, and I can begin to release the grip. If I see that my heart rate is pounding, I'm breathing rapidly, I can do some mindful breathing. The mindful breathing will help to regulate our, our breathing cycle that will bring down our heart rate and blood pressure. And so thus we come into balance. And so we can say again that here that awareness brings connection and connection brings balance. Conversely, unawareness brings disconnection. Disconnection brings out of balance. So I really want to point to this because I want to say that mindfulness plays such a strategic role in stress reduction because it is the place where we gather more information, more resources so that we can begin to make more skillful decisions. And 
You know, as I said, uh, part of our practice is to begin to recognize these places that pull us off center, the places where we get stuck, the places where we're not being aware of the patterns, the old reactive patterns that are beginning to play themselves out. And this is why beginning to pay attention to the workings of our own mind and body, to our own reactivity, is very helpful. And <clears throat> there's actually a, um, a, a beautiful teaching poem that um, speaks to this, and it's called... I, I actually think it's on the back of the handout that I had given you today as well. And it's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Patricia Nelson. And she says in chapter one, I'm walking down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm there a long time, but I finally do get out. In chapter two, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again, and I see where I am. It's my fault, and I get out a little bit more quickly this time. Chapter 3, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. It's a habit, you know. This is kind of what I do. Many of us can live in Chapter 3 for a very, very long time. But as we begin to develop our mindfulness and begin to have more resources, more information to see more clearly where it is that we're stuck and we can begin to get ourselves unstuck. So in Chapter 3, Four, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I walk around the hole. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. And so there's the potentials for beginning to change the courses of our patterns, of our destiny, by waking up, by becoming present. There's just simply much more resources. And we are creatures of habit. And so this is why mindfulness is really a lifelong practice because we forget. We have amnesia. And once again, I've fallen back in that hole again. But at least now I see that and I can begin to get out of the hole. I can begin to walk around the hole. I can begin to walk down another street. You know, if you've done it enough, that also begins to build that neural pathway where that old pattern that was so much going towards reactivity is beginning now to develop the pattern of responding that we can begin to change. But it will take time. But what else is there to do? You know, I mean, this is, this is a practice, and so um, we carry on. But, uh, so this is what I really, and this is one of the really profound aspects of awareness that's just so practical. When we awaken, it seems so simple, because once you awaken, see your whole entirely, you can let go, potentially. Sometimes we choose not to. There's an old story in ancient India. How do you catch monkeys? Well, you get a big vase, with a very thin neck, and you put bananas inside, and the monkey gets in there and grabs that banana, and it can't get out because there's not enough room with the banana. And sometimes the hunter catches the monkey, but actually the freedom is right here. It's right here. Yet it's not easy. And we, we're at work with our old patterns, our old dysfunctional tendencies. This is why sometimes we hear the stories. We continue to stay in dysfunctional situations because that's what I know. I wouldn't, no one would recognize me any other way. And so we, we, we're working with ourselves here, but to see that when we become aware, we have choice. And this is very empowering. With that awareness, we can begin to choose other ways. And in the role of perception really want to get across the possibility that we could be open to seeing things from another perspective. Sometimes we get so stuck in how we see things and we think it's, it's, it's impossible. 
or it's only behind this door or that door, but there's actually countless doors. There's so many different ways of seeing things. If I actually went and sat over there, you, all of a sudden you'd turn your attention to look at me since I'm talking, and all of a sudden the whole room shifts and changes. We could get up and change our seats and move around, and all of a sudden the room changes. And so I want to help instill, particularly since it's Halloween time, so I want to spook us all in the possibility, is there another way of seeing things? Even if we don't know what that way is, but if we're open to the possibility of seeing from another perspective, magic can begin to happen. So I'll, I'll hold it here. <laughs> Beautiful. I don't know. I don't know about you guys. But I could sit and listen to Bob talk for a long time. And <laughs> the, well, you know, and one of the last retreats I attended here, the the leader said something interesting about the traffic point that Bob was making. You know, sitting on the Golden Gate Bridge, and everything is completely stuck, and nobody's moving in any directions. And, and she came upon a sign that said, hate the traffic. Guess what? You are the traffic. <laughs> we mean, you mean I'm the problem? It's all of them. It's not me. It's, I'm the problem? I mean, this is actually very good news when you start uh, taking a look at the possibility that I could be the problem. And it kind of is humbling. It helps you out of some of the egoic self that thinks it knows so much. So that many of the things Bob's talking about in terms of responding, reacting, in terms of a, a negativity bias, this, this quality of all of us to start interpreting things poorly, that are really negatively. The, the mind really is like Velcro for the negative things. You can look back over your history. Those, look at the pictures in the picture book from your childhood, and there's all these wonderful parties and happy people, and you can't remember any of that. But you can remember falling off your bike, scraping your knee. You can remember that big fight they had. You can remember this and that, all these awful things. But I don't... Do you remember talk with my brother and sisters, no, but it's all gone. And so that there's actually a, a lot of brain science around this. And one of the very interesting things coming in mindfulness over the years that uh, John Kabat-Zinn brought this, and he being a research scientist at the very beginning, uh, there was already a great deal of science brought into this practice. And there's been some growing ever since. Uh, some resources you'll find online, American Mindfulness Network. You'll see how many mindfulness studies are being published every month. Uh, over 100 times being published. That's a lot in uh, research. And the, um, but many of these are also done in neuroscience. And the neural research around this never ceases to stop fascinating me. It's interesting stuff. And I, I suppose all of you have also gotten glimpses of it here and there and all the neuroscience going on in the world. Just recently, the study I was talking about was a, a bit of neuroscience a few months ago, uh, coming out of the University of Illinois in, in Chicago, that there is this uh, wonderful work coming out of Scott Landiger, Lange, Lange and Decker. And uh, he um, 
was uh, taking a look at human brains and looking at what you can see in a brain that would identify different mental illnesses. And some of those mental illnesses are extremely hard to diagnose. And some of those were major depression or all kinds of depression, anxiety disorder, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, a number of these things, even post-traumatic stress disorder. And he was finding markers in the brain that they can, they really got uh, some movement towards being able to identify these illnesses by looking at these markers in the brain. And uh, part of that was through MRI studies, but yes, another one they were doing with, let's see, I, got a, I wrote it here, diffusion tensor imaging, TDI, measures the degree which molecules, water molecules, move in one direction rather than randomly diffusing in the brain. So they can watch water moving. It talks about these, these kind of corridors where water's moving are really like the superhighways of the brain. And, uh, and so some of those are being developed over a period of time means that we're going to be very strong in that particular network. And he goes on to say that these different illnesses, all these emotional illnesses that they looked at, have this one thing in common, as I mentioned earlier, it's rumination. Going over things again and again and again. We all are familiar with this. We, we generally love to do it in the middle of the night. And when we're wondering about that stupid thing we said to our friend or, or we shouldn't have said or we wish we would have said or, it never stops what we're going to say, what we didn't do, all of it, you know. And, and then there's the shame and the blame and, and all of it, can, all the stuff, rumination. This is the stuff that drives mental illness, disease, disease. We've lost the ease in the body and the mind. And actually this plays a role in the brain. And he said then that this, we end up developing a network in the brain, which was also acknowledged some years ago by Norm Farb at Toronto, which he called the um, narrative-based self-referencing network of the brain. The narrative-based self-referencing network of the brain. Very interesting stuff. The default network of the human brain, the part that's responsible for rumination, where we get stuck in habits of mind and blame and, and shame and grief and somebody did me wrong songs where, where we get stuck in the narrative, the narrative of me, the narrative of my family, the narrative of what I did do, shouldn't have done. That narrative is the stuff that drives the stuff of most mental illness now we're seeing. That's pretty interesting stuff. And it can be found in a very specific network of the brain. And isn't that interesting? default network of the human brain. That means almost all human brains are like this. It's where we go to. It's our go-to of the kind of thinking we do. And it tends to towards a negativity bias. And actually, people like Stephen Porges at Stanford are finding the Cro-Magnon man, a Neanderthal man, in the, in the vagal nerve system of the human body. And it's, they're still there, influencing our way of thinking today. The the fight or flight or bite, whatever we do, uh, to protect ourselves in traffic. Uh, for God's sakes, you know, that's not a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's the guy in a hurry, you know. 
And it's like, what do I do with my mind and interpret these things? That's where the negativity plays, plays a place. So also in research that was coming out of Toronto, Norm Farb, is that he found another network in the human brain. It's not the default network. It doesn't come as with the package at birth. It only comes through practice. It only comes by us, our willingness to develop it. He called it the immediacy-based self-referencing network. So you can call one the here and now self or the narrative-based self. Who, where do you want to live? Which side? What do you want to create for yourself? And as you are doing this, you're changing your brain. This is a miracle also, neuroplasticity, uh, neural generation. We're opening up new uh, networks, and some of them are like superhighways, and, and, and those are often the negative ones. And all, some of those are, are like, you know, country roads with stop signs and potholes, and those are often the positive ones. What are you doing with your mind? What are you watering in your garden? What do you want to grow? You're the gardener. Can it take it to heart? You're the gardener. Nobody else. It's not the presidential elections. It's not the economy. It's not anything. You are the one that's pouring the water on. You're the one that's going over it again. You're the one that's working with these things. As you start looking at this, it makes it, you know, it's not, it's not like you're blaming yourself. It's just like, wow, if, if, I'm, if, I, if I'm the one doing this, I also have a great deal of um, authority of power to do something about it, to actually start putting more energy and time being present. Turns out that's the only thing that actually develops the here and now self. And just eight weeks of going through a mindfulness-based stress reduction class, the brain changes significantly in these two networks. The here and now self-referencing network, the immediacy-based self-referencing network grows significantly, even displacing the narrative-based self-referencing network. That's just eight weeks of mindfulness training. Now, mind you, like Bob said, this is no lightweight thing. People are putting fun for 45 minutes a day meditation practice at home, and then they're coming to classes and they're doing more of the same. Really putting time, doing the work of being present. The mind changes in relation to how you use it. These are good things to know. That gives you a certain amount of uh, influence. You're not just the victim of Cro-Magnon Man. You're not just some poor, you know, ancestor of Neanderthal that wanted to bite everything. It gives you a certain degree more freedom, yes. And, and so that if I see that I'm the problem, like my wife has always been saying, <laughs> I say she's the problem. That, uh, so we're all our own problems, right? And if we're good partners, we're going to be problems to each other because we're pointing these things out to one another, and generally none of us want to hear them because we don't want to lose face with the other person, but we need to listen. They often do offer things of value. So just a little bit about mindfulness and brain physiology. Just to give you some maybe inspiration to go take a look at these things yourself. 
uh, your brain actually changes. Isn't that neat stuff? It's not just your your mind changes the brain to give expression to itself. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The mind changes the brain to give expression to itself. And that's just exactly what happens. The more you cultivate this mind, the more you're also changing your brain. Then as you grow old, and you know how all the, whatever minerals in the glass like of water, like salt, and as the water evaporates, it gets saltier and saltier. That's what happens as we get old. If you, if you have anger or blame or fear or doubt, what, that's going to be... <laughs> this is a chance to maybe grow old and not have a, you know, a pile of salt, of blame, of anger at the end, or even right now. What we, what we do now is going to influence us then. So we do this with uh, meditation practice. We've done some already today. We're going to do some more right now. So taking a position that's comfortable for you. A place where your body can be self-supporting, have a certain amount of alignment with your head, your neck, and your body. We like to say not too tight, not too loose. Not too tight, not too loose. Like a guitar string, it's just right. And so take a little time investigating your body. Where are you supported in your body? Is there tightness as you're holding somewhere? See if you can find a certain amount of dignity in your posture not slouching so far back, you fall asleep or slumping forward, not so tight that it's going to create discomfort. But there's some place right in the middle, and as you'll see throughout your practice, there's ways to shift and discover where these places are that you're holding, where this place is where you can be at ease. And that might change as you're sitting and continuing to bring this kind and loving attention to yourself. Beginning this practice, the poem, Miller Williams, he says, have compassion. <clears throat> have compassion for everyone you meet. Even if they don't want it, what seems conceit, bad manners, or cynicism is always a sign, always a sign of things no ear has said, no mouth no ears heard, no mouth is said, nor eye has seen. Always a sign. No one knows what battles are raging down there where the spirit meets the bone. No one knows what battles are raging down there 
where the spirit meets the bone. And know this, the compassion you may have for any other human being is going to arise and be no more than whatever compassion you can give to yourself. Compassion being a word that means a willingness to join with suffering. To join with, to be with suffering. Not to take it away, not to rescue it, not to fix it. To be with. It's a special kind of love. Only love you can give to others is going to be commensurate to what you have for yourself. So at the beginning of this practice, know that your way of being with yourself, caring for yourself as you practice, is a huge element of practice itself. The coming back with compassion and love. The beginning again with compassion. Bringing your attention now to the breath. Notice, as you breathe in, you can feel the breath coming in. And as you breathe out, you can feel the breath going out. Using the felt sense of the breath coming and going as your way to be present. As you breathe normally and naturally. In a way, letting yourself be breathed and seeing how your body knows how to breathe you. And that left to its own devices, all human bellies do the same thing. Diaphragm drops down in the body as you breathe in and the belly rises. As you breathe out, the belly descends once again back towards the backbone. Being present for wherever and whatever you feel in the sensations of the breath coming and going. Perhaps keep it in front of you, these attitudes of non-striving, non-judging, allowing, letting be. So we're not trying to get anywhere, get rid of anything. We're just being present with breath and noticing that breath is so handy It's always coming and going, just as it is right now. You can always use it just as we are right now to be present.
sensations of the breath to allow yourself to be breathed. Now, as you will and as you like, shifting from awareness of the breath to direct your attention to sounds, to mindful listening. Notice that just like breaths come and go, sounds are always changing too. And what are they but little vibrations on your eardrums? Events sensations, being present now with rising, falling of sounds. Notice, too, that sounds can come from the outside of your body, from the inside of your body. And that as you sit in mindful listening, hearing nothing is actually hearing something. Namely, nothing. Shifting our object of practice once again now to mindfulness of the body. Sensations, however, wherever they arise of the body. Being present with this ever-world, ever-changing world of sensations. Present with kindness.
curiosity. And with sensations, sometimes the uh, mind has its interpretations, judgments and preferences. See if you might sidetrack those as they arise with simple phrases such as pleasant sensation or unpleasant sensation or neutral sensation. Letting yourself be being present changing world of sensations. Shifting our object of practice once again now to mindfulness of mental states. Emotions, thoughts, moods, sometimes one creates the other. Also, always arising, falling. Falling. 
impermanent, always changing. Awareness is that human faculty that enables you to witness these things and realize there's some part of you aware of thoughts, aware of emotions, moods that isn't itself thinking or feeling that emotion. Mindfulness of mental states, being present.
Let's shift now to our final object of practice, our fifth object, and that is choiceless awareness. Whereas these others are concentrative practices, non-concentrative practices, fluid, like an open field, wide open, choiceless awareness. Very, very spacious practice. And if you get lost, simply use the breath as an anchor to return to the present moment. And as you're ready and you like expanding once again, this very broad, spacious, choiceless awareness, being present, And taking it easy. Practicing with kindness means giving yourself a break, letting yourself be. Begin again when you get lost and do that with a lot of love. All the while cultivating forgiveness and kindness every time you return to the now. Be present.
Returning now to mindfulness of the breath. Breathing in, knowing you're breathing in, breathing out. Feeling you're breathing out, being present. Cultivating loving kindness and very, very practice of meditation as a very, very important element of each moment of practice. Not so easy to be really filled with self compassion, forgiveness. Very often we are our own worst enemies. Carl Jung has a reading that he may give us some clues to his practice with. He says, that I give to the poor, feed the hungry, forgive an insult. These are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the bakers, the most hungry of the starving and impudent of offenders are all within me. That I myself am the enemy that must be loved and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness. What then? That I stand in need of the alms of my own kindness. What then? May all beings be at peace.
We're going to continue our mindfulness practices by shifting out to mindful walking, maintaining our silence as we will, and tr- simply transferring our intentions to be fully present with each breath or each sound into the practice of walking. And I'll offer you, offer you some guidance. Mindful walking is based upon these same intentions, using sensations as a way to be present. Finding a lane of eight feet or maybe ten feet, using the sensation of the foot touching the floor as your way to be present. You may notice uh, lifting, placing, shifting, foot touching the floor. That's all. Not trying to get somewhere. Mindful walking has got no destination other than here. And here, as referenced by the sensations of the feet, nowhere to get to, no other time but now. As you go forward, then you come to the end of your lane. You pause, take a breath, notice which way you turn the right or left, return from whence you started. Notice which foot you begin with. Begin again. Being present with each step in each moment. Walking with awareness and kindness. We'll ring the bells in about 25 minutes or so. And uh, shift our practice again to something else. Mindful walking. Find a place in the room where you can have a lane to yourself. You can go outside too if you want. It's quite nice as long as it's not raining. Find a place to do it. Remain in silence. And and we're coming back to a sit in silence. Some more sitting practice when we get back. So this is a time for intensive practice. This is for each of you individually. To give you a real taste of practice, deepening your practice. Minimal eye contact. Practicing silence. Ring the bells in about 25 minutes.
So um, coming back to our seats, and we're going to keep in silence. We're in a little bit of practice mode now. So finding a position, you can be comfortable and awake. And coming to the breath in and the breath out. So you're welcome to continue to stay with the breath as the primary object. And you're also welcome to open up to whatever's here if it's more prominent. So for example, you're being with the breath, but maybe there's a sound that beckons your attention. Then in that moment, just be aware of the sound as it comes and goes. If in another moment the sensations arise in the body that are very strong and distinct, then letting yourself experience the sensations as they come and go. If not much is happening, just staying with the breath in and the breath out. If in another moment you're feeling some emotions or different thoughts, then letting yourself just experience the feelings as they too come and go. Being present and experiencing this changing nature within the body and the mind. Grasping at nothing, resisting nothing. Letting experience just unfold from one moment into the next. And experiencing directly impermanence, the nature of change. Any of our senses that arise, different thoughts and emotions, and of course, the breath that's continually coming in and out, being present. And so again, just welcome to stay with the breath as an anchor, but if something else arises that's strong, distinct, and letting yourself experience it as it comes and goes, and then coming back to the breath again. If you're at any time feeling confused or lost, not sure where to bring attention to, that's always a signal to come back to the breath as a way to anchor into the present moment. Well, this practice will be mostly in silence so that we can drop deeper into practice and just to be here in the pleasant moment, the present moment. I'd like to just offer you a reading from Henry David Thoreau and then we'll go into some silence. And He calls it the bloom of the present moment. And this is a kind of a a little journal entry of his day in a life living as a hermit at Walden Pond on some land that Ralph Waldo Emerson had owned in the middle, late 1800s. He says, there was a time when I could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand. I love a broad margin to my life. And sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny, door, sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie, 
amidst the pines, the hickories, and sumacs. And it was only by the sun falling in by the west window or the noise of some traveler's wagon on the distant highway that I was reminded of the lapse of time. And I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. This was not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. For the most part, I minded not how the hours went. The day advanced as if to light some work of mine. It was morning, and now it is evening, and nothing memorable was accomplished. And instead of singing like the birds, I just silently smiled at my incessant good fortune. There was a time when I could not sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand. I love a broad margin to my life. So this is a space here. This is a broad margin. Sitting, being present, and just experiencing life as it unfolds from one moment into the next, grasping at nothing, resisting nothing, using the breath perhaps as a way to anchor being present.
Thank you. Is this on? Can you hear me okay? Okay. And um, so thank you. We 
wanted to insert a little mini retreat in the afternoon here. So uh, began with a sitting and a walking and another sitting as it supports to deepening uh, our practice. Um, mindfulness pr- meditation is a practice, uh, an embodied practice. It's an inside job. We're learning from the inside. And so this is why practice is so um, greatly encouraged in, in, in mindfulness. There's an old story of a professor of swimology and was on a boat one day and the boat was starting to sink and the captain said, Professor, you're going to have to swim to the shore. And the professor said, I don't know how to swim. We had a PhD in swimology. So we can have a PhD in meditationology, but if we don't practice... Um, it's theory. And so we really want to encourage um, the practice. And so what a wonderful place here at Spirit Rock to also do our, our practice in. And, of course, in our MBSR programs, it's, it's heavily practiced. Each person gets an audio CD. They're practicing 45 minutes a day with a guided meditation as well as bringing mindfulness into day-to-day life. In the sixth week, there's a seven-hour silent intensive retreat that we uh, take the participants on. And so we're really encouraging practice. And, of course, in each class, when we meet, we meditate for at least an hour, hour and 15 minutes, sometimes even an hour and a half of meditation and some mindful movement. So the practice is very important. So thank you so much for uh, making having the time to do this here. And what we'd like to do now is, is shift into, again, into small groups that we did earlier, into groups of three or four people, and maybe sitting with people whom you haven't met with before. And maybe, again, one at a time to speak about um, how this day has touched you, um, what might you be bringing home, any questions, or, or uh, maybe else we actually we could wait for the questions till later. We'll have a time for a group discussion but maybe just checking in on how the practice is going for you. Any learnings? What's been your experience? And uh, so groups of threes or fours, hopefully with people whom you haven't sat with before. And if you haven't found a person, raise your hand or group. Raise your hand up in the air and look around. And uh, I know sometimes it's kind of like the high school dance. And well, anyone pick me, but you are all chosen. Thank you. So about um, 15, 20 minutes. What did you do? I don't think it was clicked all the way over. Okay.
So five more minutes, five more minutes.
So drawing your conversations to a close. And if you like, you can come a little closer as evidently some people have left. Avoid the weather or whatever. So please feel comfortable coming closer. And we have a little time to uh, talk as a larger group and maybe respond to questions or write comments, particularly regarding the uh, meditation practices we just did. That was quite a lot, you guys. That's a lot of meditation practice. Um, How many people here found that was the very first time they've ever sat and meditated that much? many people. So you guys are rock stars. That was a lot. <laughs> Not so easy. Well, uh, what did you notice? What came up for you? How did you deal with it? This is a good chance to talk about those kind of things. Questions or comments? Yes, you can't ask too many questions. Okay. Um, my name is Karen, oh. and I don't think I can hear. Is that better? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. It's really right, close. I think that the volume's not. Okay. Is there another microphone that we could use instead? It's on, but very light, low volume. Um, I noticed in having that experience of really, really meditating, what I would consider for the first time, is that my mind was go in, go out, go in, and go out a lot. (laughs) I think that's going to be a constant battle. And what's the battle part? To not let my mind go, to, to bring it in. I kept going back to the breath, back to the breath. One of the things that, one of the values of uh, participating in a practice that's some 2,600 years old, that there's all this literature reaching way back. How many, many thousands upon tens of thousands of stories? And all of us, as we begin this, the way you said it, it's like an ocean, you know, going in, coming back, and going. And uh, these these important words of non-striving and allowing really help. And this this is just what my mind does. And uh, if we're really doing the puppy training, this I don't know. You tell you tell the puppy to stay. How long does that last? Two nanoseconds. And you bring it back every time. And you find out even after doing this three or four times, it's actually there for five seconds. And all the while, though, you're growing in kindness and patience and non-judging and non-pushing. That, the work of allowing is pretty big because uh, anger can play a big role in our lives when things aren't going like we want. And this gives us a chance to find our way out of uh, anger that arises from wanting or not wanting things.
This is yes. like going to the gym and the repetition. You know, you do a barbell once or twice, you don't build muscle. It's that repetition. So the repetition of bringing the mind back. Toward the end of our um, meditation here, I was very relieved to finally <laughs> get to an open place. And I came in uh, with a lot from an interpersonal situation that I'm going through um, and an incident yesterday. And, you know, you start off balance and tripping and I didn't even know what's going on. And so I wasn't, I was present but not fully there. When uh, Bob said uh, about breathe in, no grasping, breathe out, no resisting. Um, and I started to do that no thought had a space <laughs> no, because I'm only grasping and only resisting, I found, in the space my, where my mind has been lately. Mm. So that was really helpful because I think when I feel out of control, my mind wants to grasp and resist. So I got to identify something mm. that is recurrent for me. So mm. I appreciate that today. Thank you. And how did, how did it feel when you recognized that and it was a huge relief because I've been here before um, in difficult situations and meditation has helped me. Um, this is a real biggie that I wasn't expecting. You know, I, I've gotten much more able to bring my awareness and my um, mindfulness to my everyday life. But when the really big stuff hits and it's out of the blue, you know, something I wasn't expecting, and it's very painful. It's difficult. Um, but I know that the source is the wanting to get away from it, wanting to fix it, both those things, or make it different. Uh, but I just hadn't identified it, and those two terms really mm -hmm. opened it up. And then I can let go because mm -hmm. I see what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I can just, yes. And I love the monkey <laughs> analogy with the banana. Because I'm going to use that. Just let go of the banana. I love that. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> what John named his book Full Catastrophe Living. This is where we are. And every so often, so are the catastrophes. Nobody seeks them out. Aren't they always a big surprise? Yes, back there. Hi. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, kind of lasting or lingering impact or effects of this kind of work, this kind of practice? And, you know, many example for me was coming out of the walking meditation and some physical symptoms I've been experiencing related to something recently are um, were really alleviated. And then that evaporated after a few minutes. And I felt disappointment. You know, I felt like a longing, a wanting to hold on to it. And um, I challenged, I was challenged by that. And sitting, I worked with that a lot, and sitting again afterwards, and it was sort of a real mind struggle for me to kind of wrestle with that and hope and want to see light of the possibility of this work 
having lingering effects, showing up when I'm not just sitting or walking, but during the course of the day. That that makes sense. That mm-hmm. inquiry. There's a few things that come up for me. What about you, Bob? Am I? That um, you know that it's um. When you've been doing this a long time, you hear from many, many people about their experiences, and and it's uh, easy to uh, make too big of some of these things. But truly, uh, people change their lives by taking on this practice. They find out they really do have a role in pain in their lives, and even very serious chronic pain that has been with them for a long time. Even things like irritable bowel disease and what they thought was Crohn's disease, they find out that they have a role in it. And just those little glimpses sometimes give you an idea. Hmm. And so that being careful with the grasping after the the delicious little treats that come or expectations of more, that too may be a, a trap. But being open, gosh, if that could open a little bit and give me a little bit of relief for a little while. That's interesting. And it's and it had something to do with this. And uh, the disappointed mind plays a role. The wanting to hang on to it has a role. But you just got a taste of something that is a, perhaps a possibility and can grow. And, or not. You don't know, but you stay with these things and and sometimes as little as eight weeks of an MBSR class, people do make dramatic discoveries. And of course, there's tons and tons of research around this in and, and the literature from the very beginning with a very uh, extraordinary reduces, reductions in anxiety and depression and chronic pain because people really do make such discoveries. But each person's an individual. How you do this is your own. Sometimes uh, people do remain with a certain amount of pain that they still don't want, but it's not nearly as awful to them as before. Oh, it's just this old companion, and uh, I guess we're going to have to get along is, is one of the things I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is... Um you know, the difference between curing and healing. And so in MBSR, it, it, um, there's both aspects. I mean, yes, it'd be nice if the blood pressure lowered or you had a reduction of insulin usage or the pain decreased. So those are all in the realms of healing, of curing. And, but in the realms of healing, perhaps the blood pressure stays the same, perhaps the insulin intake stays, stays the same, but somehow my relationship to it has more balance, more understanding. That's my relationship, as Steve is saying, to my pain, that I'm, I'm now in more of a relationship with it rather than being held hostage by it. And so this is, um, you know, it's very interesting because even in meditation, there's times where we'll, well, at the, was the gong rings, we might say to ourselves, this was a really good one. But then that can become a trap because in the next time I meditate, I want to duplicate that. And in some ways, when we speak about the practice, it, we're really wanting to in, gradually to grow with deeper wisdom and equanimity. And we begin to understand that 
all of these different states of mind in the body are like weather systems. They come and they go. And to be able to, um, to have that type of wise relationship, to not be so clinging or aversive to what's here, because we understand it comes and goes, um, this perhaps can bring upon um, a sense of deeper inner freedom. And, you know, we sometimes think about, like, you know, happiness is often associated with getting things, but actually probably the deepest happiness is contentment. And we cannot buy contentment. But contentment is like to become free of the wants and the not wants and to abide in your own being just as you are is delicious. And uh, not so easy to cultivate the sense of contentment and ease. So we can say sometimes in the Dharma point of view, like how do we know if we're making progress in the practice? Because that's a valid question. If I'm going to be investing my time, you know, what's the payback? And so, um, you know, we can say that um, the payback is freedom. And it's it's a practice of a lifetime. But how do we know if we're in the right track. And so this, this is a very important question. And so if we can begin to see through our practice that we're grasping less, that we're seeing more clearly into the places where we get stuck, where we get caught, and experiencing more sense of ease, we can tell, yeah, we have some ways to go here, but I'm, I'm seeing that I'm getting less reactive. I'm seeing more clearly the places where I'm holding on to or where I'm pushing away. I know I'm making some progress. I'm gaining some insight, some understanding into what is really fueling and driving my reactivity, my neuroses, my shit. <laughs> and so the, these are very important markers. That's why like in insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, we're really working on cultivating deeper insight into the nature of our minds in the places where we're not seeing clearly, where we're holding on, where we're pushing away. And... Um, so let, maybe that can be the navigator as far as uh, our practice, helping us to see more clearly these places so that potentially we begin to become less caught, feel more freedom, learn to have more even balance when things don't go the way that I want them to go. And, and somehow I'm, I'm, you know, I'm saying that these moments are not measuring up to my expectations, but how do I actually meet this moment and how do I learn how to go with it? rather than fight it. Yeah. Your, your comment makes, brings up another point, too. I, I live on a, a river, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. When the rains really come, like we just saw, it goes for a while, then that really picks up. And really, it's, it's inaccessible from any place above my, my property or all my neighbor's property. But I have a couple of neighbors that also like to kayak as I do sometimes, so when that river's going all by, it's, it's great fun to kayak down it. It's really a roaring waterfall. And there's a waterfall near my house, and one year my, my friend was just going to go over that waterfall. He has three of his other friends with him coming behind him. And rather than just go over the waterfall, you fly a little bit and keep going, this time he got sucked into a keeper hole. And these are wind kind of windmills, like washing machines and there are current that goes in a circle, and that's where most people die in kayaking accidents and whitewater rafting accidents. You get stuck in the keeper hole. He was stuck in the keeper hole. And he, he went up to the surface a few times and tried to paddle out, and it sucked him down. So he kicked out his kayak, and then he tried to swim out. And it sucked his body down. 
And he tried to get up again and swim out, and it sucked his body down. And he's a strong guy, even though he was 70 or 70 or so at the time. He was exhausted, hyperthermic, and he realized he was drowning. His friends couldn't get a rope to him. He realized he was drowning. And he did something absolutely crazy. And he went down next time and dove right into where the water was moving fastest and the rocks were biggest and it was coldest and darkest. Dove right into that. And he felt a little tug to the side. And he went that way and he got spit out about 30 feet away. And he was free. And his life was saved. He was amazed. Sometimes we don't find our way out of these traps of pain and horror and grief and betrayal until we actually go towards those things we're most afraid of. Mindfulness is doing just that. It's looking into the dark places. One of the things Carl Jung once said is that people don't become enlightened by following figures of light, but by bringing light into dark places. Not so easy. Some others. Hold it really close. Okay. Um, thank you for that. That was um, really beautiful and um, uh, really helpful. Um, the people in my group each said that doing the physical thing today, whether it was walking or breathing or just meditating, they were surprised how um, many things were at, uh, they were feeling sadness, happiness, not just breathing. And I was really um, struck today. Uh, I didn't come here because I have, I do have chronic pain, but I wasn't thinking about it from that perspective. I was thinking about what to take back to my teenage kids, and that's a whole another destruction uh, uh, discussion. But I was really shocked, and I think we all commented on it in, in um, some ways. I've had a lot of surgeries, and when I breathe, and I feel like I'm the, my most stuck, my breath gets. Um, stuck in that place where I've had surgery and it takes you know a, a while to get through that till I can breathe into my belly but I realize that when it gets stuck there I do I feel like all of this anger and frustration and loss and things that I think I had worked through um, but it has a very physical place in my body and it, sometimes it's on a daily basis I have to get past that and I guess I wasn't associating all of those things that were popping up with that tightness right there. And that was really amazing today. So thank you for making that connection. Mm. Mm. I see the sadness and the hurt in your eyes mm. as you talk about that place. Our bodies and hearts speak to us when we show up to be in them. And the courage to let yourself feel it. And we never want to suggest for anyone to go over the edge, but we're working with it. And so you got to see that and we're willing to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And easy does it. You know, I've come across through the years at times some people that the breath is just not 
the most suitable of objects to work with. And so sometimes we'll actually suggest to change it, even though we all breathe. Sometimes um, I was talking with someone during the break where they came aware that they stopped their breathing a lot, and which is a, no a normal thing too. And so sometimes we'll suggest to shift objects such as do herring meditation or mindful sensations. And um, yeah, depending on where you are and your interest and feeling safe, like, oh, here's, here's just another layer of something. Um, I can't tell you through the years how many times I've heard famous last words I thought I was done with it. <laughs> I know enough to probably not for me to say that. And um, yeah, because just when I'm not looking, sometimes something is here. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of courage to feel that, to acknowledge it. So one of the things to keep in front of us is uh, important attention. Attention I learned from Gregory Kramer Trust emergence. Trust emergence and realize there's something emerging here that's important to me. Uh, and even if it means uh, learning how to embrace feelings and sensations that are very unpleasant, there's value in, in learning to uh, put out the red carpet for everything, so to speak. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage. Nobody does this overnight. Sometimes we have to go to certain places again and again and again and again before something eases up or another light comes on and we go, oh. There's no striving to get there, though. Yeah, I think that turning in and becoming acclimated, that in time, that integration grows. There's a wonderful uh, few words from Jennifer Wellwood. Uh, she has this poem called Unconditional, and she says, whatever you flee from will pursue you. Whatever you welcome will begin to transform you. And so this is a practice of, uh, of turning in, and sometimes it might feel a little bit counterintuitive, turning into my pain, physical or mental or emotional. So there is a right timing, of course, for this, and we don't want to push anyone over the edge. But it, there's a sort of a, a, a counterintuitiveness that we have to, to work with. And I remember when I was very young, driving a car in the Boston area in the winter just after getting my license, and I kept on skidding out in the snow, and my father said, if you want to get out, you've got to turn into it. That found, sounded crazy, turning into the place I want to get away. That's like the keeper hole, turning into the keeper hole. I want to get out of it. And yet there was a certain wisdom. I remember one time turning my car towards the skid, and I couldn't believe it beginning to straighten. And I feel like my father planted a little bit of a seed, turning into the fear. And uh, perhaps we can begin to find our hearts there. But easy, easy does it. You know, there's, there's, there's the comfort zone, there's the learning zone, and the, there's the activated danger zone. And we don't learn in the activated danger zone. It's just not helpful. So we want to learn in the learning zone. So we maybe like yoga, you know, we're going to stretch, but we don't pull our arm out of socket. You know, we play with it, and gradually that elasticity begins to grow as we uh, work with the edges. So we might have time for one or two more, and then we'll have a closing meditation for another two hours, no, for 15, 15 minutes. <laughs> but anything else? Please, there's a hand over here.
Raise your hand so she can see. Thank you so much. <clears throat> um, so I was wondering, a lot of the activities, the, the mindfulness activities, kind of for me, um, evoke different um, thoughts and feelings. Um, I was wondering, how do, you, how do you recommend a person to practice which activity at what time of the day or when? How does mm -hmm. one decide on, on their practice of, of mindfulness? Yeah. So the best time is the time that you do it. <laughs> and so we don't necessarily recommend a certain time, but, but we do recommend that if you have a strong intention that I want to do this, then you know, may you make the time for this. So for some people, it works best for them when they get up in the morning, be, you know, the, that's when they sit. Some people, it's better at, right after lunch or, or, so, or before dinner. So those are formal part of the practices of mindfulness where I'm going to sit for half hour, 15 minutes, even five minutes would make a huge difference, really. Even five minutes just stopping could be very helpful. So those are formal ways of practicing and then bringing the intention that every time I eat my meal, I'm going to be mindful for my first chew and I chew it and taste it and swallow it. And every time I pick up the broom, I'm going to be mindful for that first sweep. Every time I squeeze the toothpaste, I'm going to be mindful of squeezing the toothpaste. Every time I say hi to my kid in the morning, the first time I'm going to really say hi and really be there in just delicious moment of loving my kid. And so we want to make that intentionality of bringing our mindfulness into our day-to-day -day activities as well as formally. Some people find that it's helpful to create a little corner in their bedroom or if they have an extra bedroom or some space in the house where this corner is kind of like your meditation corner. And so it will look at you when you walk by it. It will call to you. So if you have like a, a, a meditation pillow there and a, maybe a candle and you know, it's, like, it's like, a little, like a little place where you go to meditate, it will call to you. And, and so it's, sometimes that's very, very helpful. Of course... Um, if you do an internet search for mindfulness, if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, there'll be many, many pages. And so getting involved in a community uh, of people that are practicing together. Spirit Rock has a lot of things going on. Not only do they have intensive meditation retreats up the hill, but they have a lot of weekly and weekend activities and classes. And so come here if you live close by here. Because what we find is that practicing with the community is incredibly supportive. It was once said um, with the Buddha and, and um, with one of the monks, and they were looking at this gathering of people there, and he, and he said to the Buddha, gosh, uh, the community's like half the holy life. And, and the Buddha said, no, the community's the whole of the holy life. And so like the sense of community is really supportive. And so finding a sitting group where you can go and practice maybe once a week or more than that will help support you in your day-to-day -day life. So I really want to encourage, you know, practicing with community. And if not, if there's no one nearby you, you start your own sitting group. Once a week, you have friends come over on Sunday night and you sit together for a while. And before you know it, they start inviting their friends. And before you know it, you have to go find a place. And, and, but you can do this on your own. Just, you know, no one has to be a teacher. I mean, it's peer-led, and you can sit, you can listen to a guided meditation. And, but I think keeping that in mind to help grow the practice is important, and, and, and that intentionality. 
And I would suggest also to keep it simple. You don't have to do a, a lot of different meditations. You just the mindfulness of breathing is, is, is quite enough for, for the body scan. Where do you live? South Bay, there's lots going on in the South Bay. There's an insight, insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. There's Insight Meditation South Bay um, in Mountain View. In San Jose, there's a few sitting groups. Santa Cruz, I live in Santa Cruz. We have a meditation center there. Yeah. Thank you. So um, maybe we'll, we'll, um, we want to honor our time. We know we go to 4.30 and, and we'll sit for a few minutes. And I also just want to let you know that um, if any of you are, this is a commercial announcement, um, if any of you are interested in being on, to be notified if you're interested in MBSR teacher training, I actually offer trainings at El Camino Hospital Mountain View. And on the table where the CDs are, if there's a sheet of paper if you want to put your name on there. I can let you know of upcoming things. You don't have to buy a CD to put your name on there. It's not trying to get you to get a CD. But if you're interested in that training, um, feel free to put your name and email address. Anything else you want to say before we close? Uh, I'm just flooded with uh, so much uh, compassion right now for so many people in this room. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's begin then with compassion. So as well as... Um, you know, practicing mindfulness and actually really an outgrowth of mindfulness practice is the practices of the heart. And it's very interesting in the Chinese character for the word mindfulness, it's heart and mind is actually one word. It's not separated. So maybe we can call it kindfulness. And of course, as we practice mindfulness, we become aware of the workings of our own heart, becoming more sensitive to our own pain and that of others. And in many cases, just a natural evolution to cultivate the sense of kindness. Perhaps that's why the Dalai Lama says that my religion is kindness. And so we'll land with a practice of the heart and bringing awareness into your own heart. If you want to put your hand on it, you're welcome. If not, no problem. Just feeling into our own heart with a sense of compassion. I think we well know that uh, one of the greatest critics of ourselves is ourselves. May we open to great compassion for our shortcomings, our imperfections. May we open to these teachings of the heart and opening into our heart with great reconciliation. Everything in our life has led us into this moment. We're here. May we open into compassion for ourselves, just as we are.
may we invite in a sense of ease within our being. That perhaps for these few moments that there's nothing that you need to get, nothing that you have to push away, opening into a sense of contentment and ease, just as you are. Just allowing yourself to be held with great compassion. Just to be held. letting it in just to be held with some loving kindness just as you are. Cultivating the sense of goodwill and ease within us and letting it be shared with those that are near and dear to us, our family, our friends, our community. Letting this goodwill just spread to all beings. May all beings be with peace. May all beings discover the gateways into their own hearts, opening to a deep compassion, making peace. Standing this goodwill above and below and all around in all directions to those living in the earth or on the earth, to those living in water, to those living mostly in the air, extending this goodwill to all beings. May all beings dwell with peace. These are the beautiful teachings of the Dharma. May all beings be at peace. Let 
Letting just extend throughout this world and throughout this universe. May we never underestimate the powers of love. Just like even a single candle dispels the darkness all around it in the mist of the night when it's illuminated, and so too love dispels fear and pain. Love dispels a sense of separation, disconnection, and isolation. So feeling into that sense of connection. As we breathe in, this is a gift of oxygen from the plant world. And as we breathe out, our gift of our carbon dioxide feeds the plant world. It's reciprocal. It's connected. Just as the bones of the body are made of the elements, So too, this world is made of its own elements. The essential building blocks of this life, atoms, that make up the organs, that make up the body, are found here and everywhere. Feeling part of the family of things. May we know peace. May we open to great kindness. And I'll end with a very beautiful reading from American-Palestinian poet Naomi Shiab Nye in a poem that she wrote called Kindness. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness. And how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out those windows forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian and a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road, and you must see how this could be you, and how that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing, and you must wake up with sorrow, and you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of that cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day. It's only kindness that raises his head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend, then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. May all beings dwell with peace.
So thank you so very much for coming here today. And also to say that um, there is a number of mindfulness-based stress reduction programs in the San Francisco Bay Area and actually all over the country. So again, if uh, you're interested in these types of programs, you can internet search them. On that um, handout we gave, there is some information about resources and bringing mindfulness into day-to-day life. And thank you. Have a good, safe drive home. Remember, when you leave Spirit Rock, you have to take a right out the driveway out onto Sir Francis Drake Boulevard and then turn around. One thing that could be also very helpful for us, since we have a number of us here and there's very limited volunteers, if we could all put the cushions and the mats, everything back there, that will really be very helpful for the staff, but we can leave the chairs here. I was told that there's going to be another event tomorrow, so that can be here. Thank you so much for coming. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.